Episode 73 of the Reptile Gumbo Podcast. It looks a little different. Two, two-thirds of us are here. Uh, we yeah, are, I'm, I'm Katie today. Yes, Corey is filling in for Katie because she is in the mountains of Alabama at an all-girls camp with our daughter. So, we get Corey. Yay! So, I, it's just my, she's my wife, so I can't say it's an upgrade. It's it's not an upgrade. It's, it's a lateral different. shift. In, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, one can, no one can fill Katie's shoes. Yes, yeah, she's she's currently taking pictures <clears throat> of like three hundred and something little screaming girls. <laughs> but we uh, so Robert and I we got a new table for our podcast studio. If anybody's watching the video, you can see our new table. It's one table and not two plastic fold up tables that shift around nonstop. It this looks thing, like a teacher reading center. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> it totally is. We got it from a, a school uh, a place that sells like old school tables and stuff. Yeah. And there you go. So this is 100% the table you get under if there's a tornado or an atomic bomb. Yep. Because it weighs 5 trillion pounds. Yes. And I don't know if you know, but the podcast room is upstairs. Yeah, it's on the second floor. Oh, gosh. It was <sighs> it, it was heavy. And I ended up buying two really nice adjustable height tables on casters for the shop. Yeah. Those are really cool tables. Hey, oh. send me the link, James, so I can actually keep up with the chat. Oh, let me do that. Because I, I can't. That's... <laughs> Technology. I have to move my head three inches to the right, and that's just too much. I don't want you to work too hard. Yeah. You might get tired. Er. <laughs> so let's see who we have in the chat. Puget Sound Pythons. There's our buddy yeah. John John Grant. And then uh, Jason Brumley, the only person using your arboreal rack for snakes. Yep. Every other one has doobie roaches in it, including the one that just got ordered yesterday. <laughs> Jason Brumley is the only one with snakes in there. Uh, J Babies Reptiles. And then oh, the person said it's not Nick. Nick will be here shortly. Calm down, people. Uh, and then Darren. Chris Sexton. Hi. Yes. So okay. before we get to our guests, because I want to get to our guests, let's go ahead and do our, our sponsors. I got Katie to, to send me what I'm supposed to say for Robert. So let's see if I can do this. Are you looking for a high-quality PVC rack? Look no further than Lone Star Reptile Racks. They offer a variety of sizes for all types of snakes, geckos, rats, and more. You can even order something custom. Shipping is available, or you can plan to pick up at a Herps Reptile Show near you. Visit lsreptileracks.com to reach out to Lone Star Reptile Racks and place your order today. Okay. Yep. Whew. I think it's like one breath in that. Got that done. Also, uh, shout out to our, our other sponsors, uh, ooh, I, actually, I can actually put them on the screen. I made a little banner if I can find my mouse. There it is. Uh, our other sponsor, Wiregrass Exotics, who had their opening weekend this past weekend. Uh, they did very well in Ozark, Alabama. Again, if you're anywhere near southeast Alabama-ish, go by, see our buddies at Wiregrass Exotics. And our other sponsor, Herps Reptile Shows, which I feel like we haven't seen them in forever. And mm-hmm. it's going to feel like that for another like three weeks, two weeks. I don't have another show till the end of August, and I don't even know what to do with myself. We have Slidell on uh, end of July, sometime. I just know it's end of July, and then uh, it's the, so we have. Yeah, I should have pulled it up. You're I, making me think. I've been planning this uh, out. We have <laughs> Slidell the twenty fourth and twenty fifth of July. Then we have Oklahoma City the thirty first and first, and then I think we have a week off, and then we have Bryan College Station. 
Yeah, the twenty. That's the twenty first, I think. I literally have it in my freaking phone right here. So, um, Corpus Christi is the fourteenth and fifteenth of of August. August, and then Bryan College Station is the twenty first and twenty second of August. And then in September, Conroe. I'm say Conroe's again. September 11th and 12th. And then the 25th and 26th is New Orleans, which that's my wife's birthday weekend. So we're going to have fun. Yay. And then we have Beaumont. And then we start hell. Oh, where it's just like a million in a row. One, two, three, four, five shows in a row. One of which is starts off with Pueblo and then Waco and then Amarillo. It's it's uh, Colorado. It's a lot of driving. 16 hours and then 11 hours. Yep. Luckily, Waco's only three. Colorado and then a tour of Texas. And then Lafayette and then Stafford, which it, it ends with the show that's 20 minutes from my house. That's not bad. Yeah. So I'm not complaining. I it's, love shows. It's also, it's also 20 minutes from my house. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It's the closest I've ever been to a, a Herb's Reptile show. Yeah. It's nice to be able to sleep in your own bed. It's going to be great. So those are our sponsors. I want to make sure we got through that. Um. I know we, we promised a giveaway last month, and I have not forgot about it. Uh, we're going to give away Catchy Bug Catcher, and, and trust me, I'm going to get back to that. This whole move had us thrown off, but I'm going to do the – we said we we're going to do the likes on our Facebook page. I've got to pull all that up and pick a winner, but we will announce it on the next one. And then I have a sponsor lined up for, uh, for this month, which I will announce who it is and what it is once we figure it out next month. No, no, next episode, next week. So, uh, if anybody wants to help, we were trying to figure out what to give away. Something in like the eighty to hundred dollar range for reptiles. That you think? Shoot us a message. Give us an idea. We we'd love to have an idea of what people out there would like to win. Uh, obviously, don't be like, I want a Boland's python. That shit's not happening. Calm down. <laughs> no, you have to hit up Corey for that. She's the only no. one that can afford that kind of stuff. No, I can't <laughs> afford a Boland's. We've been through this. We've been yeah. through it. <laughs> Not that she didn't try. I, I, I tap out before Boland's level. <laughs> All right. So now we know where the limits are. <laughs> there are limits. <laughs> so we'll, we will get to that, I promise. And we, But shoot us a message. Let us know what kind of things you think would be good giveaways for reptile people in general. Um, our guest tonight, uh, we could buy a copy of his book and give it away. That's a good one, too. If yeah. you can find one at the current one, it's pretty hard to come by. Unless you have true. like $500 to spend on resale. That is true. Unfortunately, that, that's happened with a lot of really good reptile books. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them went out of print and then everybody realized, oh, we wanted them. And now if you want, like you can go on eBay and find them and it's like 500 bucks for something that was originally like $35. So let's anyway, bring them on. Let's go, let's go ahead and bring on our guest. Our guest tonight is Nick Mutton of Inland Reptiles. Hey, Nick. Hey. Hey, there's Nick. Uh, <laughs> so. If anybody out there is into carpet pythons at all, you 100% either know Nick or you've screwed up. Those are the <laughs> options. That's all there is. So, so Nick, Nick, we were just talking about the book. So what's kind of the status on the on the new edition? Uh, it, 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 <laughs> I don't want to seem overly optimistic, but it, it's close. <laughs> The writing stage is obviously the most lengthy, arduous part of it, and that is down to just literally probably fewer than five pages left out of a 600-page book. Um, nice. Just waiting on a, a few, on some test results to come back, and then so we can kind of collate that and include it in the evolutionary history chapter. The rest of it's pretty much there. Uh, 
it's a lot bigger. Um, it's not, it's not just like a second edition of the first book where you just kind of dust it off, throw in some new, add a, add an extra chapter and throw in some new pictures and send the same book out. It's well, a lot has changed in Carpet Python since the last book came out. I'm, I'm one thing I'm pretty proud of is that very little needed to be changed in the book, and that most of the assertions and the science and things put out there, you know, some things needed only you know minor minor tweaks, you know the divergence time for bread lie being going from 14 million years to like 10, you know, that kind of a thing uh, with more results, but not really any major, uh, really major things that were way wrong that needed to be corrected. There's just more data now and there's more, I don't know. I, I don't want to buy the same book twice. If I already have a book, I mean, I want, and they come out with another edition. I want it to be worth getting that other edition with new stuff. So we may have gone a little overboard. Um, it's, I talked to my publisher, Bob Ashley, and I'm like, you know, the first book's like 360 pages. And I said, you know, Bob, like, sure would like to, what do you, you know, what do you think about, uh, maybe like 450, 500 pages? And he's like, and he, the conversation went kind of like, yeah, we could probably do that. And then he said something goes, well, we did that book for Kevin. It was like 830 pages. And every time, you know, if you get over about 800 pages, you have to use different paper and you got to do some things differently. And all I heard was, so you're saying I can go over 800 pages. <laughs> like, all right, challenge accepted. There's no, no limit really. I mean, so it's going to be time for a, a pop-up book. It's yeah, really like, that'd be awesome. Wouldn't that be awesome? You didn't know it was in there and you just opened the just middle, snake comes out pop, at you pop up in the inside cover. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's going to be big. big so you were telling time. me, Nick, that the, that the, morph chapter is expanding tremendously I don't, yeah that's the last thing i'll put together okay how the morph chapter exists as it there's a text file and there's a folder for every morph and every combination of morphs and there's currently like 137 folders holy shit yeah there's a lot a lot more than you'd think i'm still trying to get pictures of a couple things that i know exist like it's crazy um how much of that stuff in the time since the first edition how much more of that uh has happened so when it's tricky because what what all so it's it's the car it's the more complete car python book right that's the i hope they don't call i honestly hope they don't use that title but I bet they do. <laughs> it will. well i mean in that series of books there's been two other books that got second editions and they went with that i suspect that that's what it will be. If I get to vote, I probably don't. I'll vote against that. <laughs> but I, it's probably not going to be up to me. Bob will probably make the call on that one. The problem with it being such a, it's got to be a big book because it's it's not like you're covering just ball pythons where you're just talking one species. You're talking a, a large variety of species. Or yeah, this is going to cover, depending on how you look at it and everything, it's going to cover 10 different taxa. Wow. Um, yeah, it's well the carpet python complex. That's eight distinct entities unto itself. Whether or not you should give them a Latin name for this population or that population, you know they are distinct. I mean, mm-hmm. a jungle carpet probably shouldn't have a Latin name. There's no real basis for that taxonomically, but they do represent a distinct regional form that's unique to a certain area. So they are a thing. Whether or not they are worthy of you know having their own taxonomic designations, another a separate question. Uh, so they get their own chapter either way. Uh, but we also added a chapter on Owen Pelly pythons this time. That was oh, okay. I was wondering what else was there in addition to Ruffies. 
Does that make uh, sense? Well, okay. it turns out, based on the most recent molecular work that was done in 2020, uh, I mean, the same lead author also put out a paper on the Antaresia genus that I have some serious misgivings about that paper and his methodology. Yeah, it's like, I, and I have, you know, I have a lot of friends who are academics and all of them like, yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> kind of, largely, it's like there's a little, I don't know about that. Con- those conclusions. Um, effectively, he wrote a paper on the Antaresia genus and there's one, he completely did not address the single biggest elephant in the room and there's this one population. It's like the biggest question you'd, you'd expect to be answered for sure is ignored. Then says that, you know, Stimson and I and children are the same thing, but somehow spotted pythons are three different species and it's just... I I don't I I was there any, disagree. Was there any genetic uh research to back that up or was it just a Yeah, it was, but it's there's I mean, I don't I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but taxonomy is every bit as much an art and a philosophy as it is a science. Uh it is a completely artificial construct. It's just the basically that the the totality of life on earth is so immense and so complicated that our little tiny primate brains can't grasp it all. So we divide the natural world up into these artificial little boxes that we call species to break it up into manageable sized chunks so we can kind of get our brains around it. And that's the, but those things are not static. They are ever changing. They're like, you know, it's, there is an ebb and flow to distribution and their genetics and how in relation to other related forms and, it only seems like it's static because we don't live very long as humans. Our time on Earth is so brief that it looks like everything is the same and is constant when really the only constant is change. So where does one draw the line for what's a species, what's not a species? Turns out there is no line. It's a completely made-up thing. There are no rules. It is the Wild West of science. It's the most ridiculous sort of proposition. The rules for taxonomy were laid out by Linnaeus in 1780-something. And it basically it gives no guidance as all you need to do is literally the rules the code the, the official code for taxonomy is that you need to write up a description for your new species in which you describe how it differs from related species give it a name publish it and a certain number of copies need to be distributed within a certain mile radius of where you live because this was in the days of you know you know printing presses and whatnot you know you need to send out 100 copies within 100 miles of where you live that that's it so this is how it's such a mess. They've never updated it. There is no, there is no rule. There's no standardization. So everybody does their own thing, and they do things completely differently. Well, it's really screwy because you know the the elementary definition of a species is always uh, they they can't as long as they can't breed together. Two, you know, similar things that can breed together. Well, then that doesn't work because you look at things like tigers and lions. Like, okay, we agree not the same species. But they can have babies. Yeah, and uh, you know, well, or all the carpets. <laughs> Or humans, for that matter. We, all of us on this conversation, are an amalgam of at least four different hominid species that all hybridize together. Mm-hmm. We are mostly mm-hmm. Homo sapiens, with a little pinch of Neanderthal, mostly if you're European, not so much if you're African. A little pinch of Denisovan, mostly concentrated in South Asia and Micronesia, but a little bit of that's in Europe. West African populations have a genetic ghost lineage in their DNA that shows interbreeding event with another other hominid species that we have no fossils for whatsoever. I mean, but we interbred with them. And there's also in Asia, there's another ghost lineage in Asia. There's probably latent populations of late surviving Homo erectus. So basically, we're as mixed up as any of this stuff. Well, um, and it doesn't help that he, as humans, we like everything to be nice straight lines. 
and, it's, and it turns out it's it's all it's, like a web. It's anything but like with well, the carpets to stay on topic, I guess a little more. You end up with a there's a model for species and and it's called the braided stream, which is kind of where most people's heads are at now. Where it's instead of imagining like the old school like linear evolution of just you know you think of that old stupid drawing of like the of like a chimp like animal that then like gradually stands up and becomes like a dude at the end like that's completely wrong but then why do we still have monkeys oh my god uh, I, <laughs> I just stopped talking and people say that because at that point like you're not gonna you're not gonna bridge that you know that divide it's like you're just not i mean because you're not gonna talk somebody out of it if someone has a belief that was formed without any evidence you're not they're not gonna be persuaded out of it with evidence because they're not persuadable they're just like they you know if Evidence not required. Now I'm just like, you know, good luck to you. And uh, I don't, I, you can't. I used to bang my head against the wall trying to convince people of stuff. I'm like, wow, awesome. I guess there's still monkeys. Cool. Like, no, it doesn't, they just, they just totally missed the, missed the mark on that stuff. Well, and, and we talk about the whole thing, uh, you know, not being a straight line. The problem is a lot of people don't realize when it comes to evolution, sometimes things go and there's dead end, or sometimes they go and then they revert back and then they go again. Like, there's, the problem is we weren't there, so like it's very. Hard. I get what you're saying. Like taxonomy is near impossible to know unless you're well, there it, the entire time. It's the lack of standardization that's the bigger problem. In that, okay, for example, for every you know type of organism, there's usually a small little cabal of academics that are the specialists in that area, and they're the ones that write all the papers. Uh, with Australian pythons. It's a small group of people. Every paper that comes out, their names, it's the same group of guys. And there's one. Lead author might and <laughs> don't even get started on that tangent. <laughs> it's the same group of guys. Now, this group of guys, they are of the mind, they're what you'd call lumpers. They think everything's the same. For something in their mind to be a different species, it requires an absolutely patently absurd level of differentiation. Uh, that nobody else uses or applies to anything. Yet on the flip side of that, there are bird species and frog species that have been classified as separate species based entirely on the calls that they make. Oh, this bird's song that it sings in this valley is different than the song the same bird sings in the next valley. It must be a different species. They're not even, there's nothing. It's like, oh, they sing a different song. It's a different species. Yet pythons... Apparently, Australian pythons need to be 5% sequence divergent to be separate species, according to this group of people, which is insane. Well, it's just crazy when you think about the difference in DNA between a human and a chimpanzee, and we totally agree that we're it's different It's a little species. more complicated than all that, but if you were to apply that 5% rule, you'd have one species of great ape, because all of them were all within 5%, easily within 5%. You would have, you know, one elephant, you would have one rhinoceros, you would <laughs> just be like it's say, you know, this ridiculous you'd have one large cat one pantheride cat like you'd have because all of these things you know it it doesn't uh that's an absurdity the even bigger absurdity than that is monitor lizards you might have noticed because monitor lizards wouldn't you know it they've got a little group of guys that are the only guys that write papers on monitors i mean you guys are reptile people and even if you're not monitor people you're obviously must be familiar with monitor lizards has it ever occurred to you how absolutely just fucking insane it is that they put all these things in one genus that there are that it's is almost insane absurd it's absolutely it's laughable that they think that that it's like are you out of your freaking minds you obviously have about 10 genera oh all the little mm -hmm. tree monitors with the prehensile tails that are all obviously one unit 
And then there's the dwarf, dwarf monitors, yeah. Yeah, and then you've even got, there's three species, two living and one extinct. You have a giant monitor group that's fucking venomous. You've got Komodo dragons, crocodile monitors, and the extinct Megalania are all three closely related, and all three are giant monitors that are literally venomous. But somehow they're Varanus. Like, 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 I've been to Australia, I found some, like, Varanus stori, stori. These things are, like, the size of a glorified anole as adults. But that is somehow in the same genus as, you know, a five-meter-long venomous monitor lizard from the place. Yeah, you got monitors That's, in Africa and monitors in Australia. Like, there's always been some separation between the two. It's insane. Like, it's like, you've obviously got, like, a savanna monitor group that, I mean, you've got mm-hmm. these, a mangrove monitor group. There's a water monitor group. And all these things should be different genera. It's just nuts that they... Nope, because the little group of people that do those papers, nope, it's all one species, and nobody challenges it, even though it's ridiculous. Like, it's, I don't know, like, it, it's useful to a point, I guess, but I think I used to put too much stock in taxonomy. It's just like, it's, when you peer behind the curtain and you start doing it, working in those sort of areas, you start realizing how just utterly made up and silly a lot of it is, but it just, it depends What's a species and what's not? The single biggest thing that goes into that is the opinion and ideological views of the person who wrote that paper. Since everybody is free to draw whatever line they want for speciation, they they do. Some people split hairs, some people lump everything together. And there isn't even an accepted taxonomy at all. There's no... Someone puts out a paper. That guy just put out that paper uh, that says Stimson's pythons and children's pythons are the same species, which is ridiculous but he said that and like there are people who seem to think that like that's it's official now they're the same species and there there is no such thing as official taxonomy sometimes you get like a scientific consensus and things get accepted but anybody looking at that is free to refute and not use those names and disagree that's how science works it's not it's never official because you know escore in, in australia decided that they're the same species you can just not you can just you can ignore it you don't have to accept it so go on about your merry way without doing anything about it as someone who writes a book on you're writing an entire book on several species of the same genus for the most part how do you choose which thing to what do you choose which one to listen to because there there are so many things in there with them and there's obviously one person who has his own own opinion my own views on speciation and taxonomy uh there's a concept called the total evidence approach what you've got, to, I think it's a detrimental trend, is that now we have this really awesome tool, DNA. And that's really awesome for figuring out relationships. That's super useful. Um, and the tendency has become that, like, the DNA is all that matters. Nothing else matters at all. It's just about the DNA. And I disagree with that. You have kind of a three-legged stool for what's a species. Uh, your genetic aspect of it, that is easily measurable and testable. And you've also got your biogeographical sort of things are these things separate are they breeding or interbreeding or were they recently in the past and you've also got phenotypic differences have they physically changed sometimes you end up with paradoxical situations where animals are vastly different genetically but physically almost indistinguishable like water pythons should probably be two different species but you can't tell them apart but the ones in northern territory are vastly different genetically than the ones in queensland they look the same on the outside but they've not been interbreeding just because they've been isolated and they've that genetic drift has occurred and they have wandered off on their own little evolutionary tangents does not necessarily mean that they would have changed phenotype so there's kind of a discordance there in that people tend to believe or want to believe that there is a strong correlation 
between genotype and phenotype. And they're not it, sometimes, but sometimes not. Sometimes you can have things that are genetically very different, but look the same, haven't changed much physically. Or you can have the flip side of that where they've radically different physically, but genetically there's very little difference. Um, phenotype can evolve way faster than genotype. Like you will see, well, you guys mostly, from what I gather, breed morphs of boas and balls and this sort of thing. I mean, look at how quickly in your own collections you've managed to make something that doesn't even resemble the species you started with. Oh, yeah, it only I mean, took, well, a hot, took a hot minute, didn't it? And then there you go, well, look at this. This is like some crazy thing. It's like, I mean, nature's doing those same sorts of yeah, experiments, two, isn't it? Two it's, brown sticks together and get a white one. Yeah, or look at the, like, like peppered moths. Peppered moths, because of the Industrial Revolution, change colors naturally, yeah. quickly, over time. There's a bunch of I mentioned that in the in the new book actually. There's a there's a there's a bunch of examples of, you know, you know, rapid evolutionary change uh, in a short period of time in response to things. Uh, it gets into a theory first put out in the night early 1970s called punctuated equilibrium by Stephen Jay Gould. But I mean, there's a species of cod that oh we overfished the crap out of these cod, so they started sexually maturing at ridiculously small sizes because all the bigger ones keep getting caught. So now they're just like juvenile size for their breeding, like in <laughs> You know, a single human generation, there's been measurable evolutionary change in a species in response to, you know, overfishing in that case. So uh, that kind of, I don't know, where, it's all just where do, you, where do you draw the line and everybody draws the line in a different place. So, shouldn't get so, too so Nick, given that you're writing the book on it, though, like at some point you do have to draw some of those lines and determine yeah, kind yeah. of what you're going to do. So how do you do that? Uh, you, you struggle with it until the very last chapter. <laughs> like that's like where we're at like you you write all the easy stuff and then hope yeah. you have an epiphany <laughs> ultimately you have to have a taxonomic arrangement and you have to have a position on a thing you can't to me i don't want to be wishy-washy about anything uh so we've gone as far as anybody is ever farther than anybody's ever gone on a reptile book to answer these questions um i feel like you just end the book with and well who the fuck knows and that's it. Move on. It's your our knowledge is never really complete, is it? It's always like here's basically what we think based on all the best evidence at this moment, but that's always subject to change in light of more evidence. So you can't have sacred cows. You can't like, and too many people, even in the scientific community, sometimes they just get they get in their head that this is they just are unwilling to back down in light of new evidence, and they just stick to their guns on something that's wrong. Well, we see that in the hobby with. Uh... One thing I think recently, you know, for the longest time we assumed reptiles were were not that intelligent for the most part. You know, some of the monitors we always kind of assume monitors were, but a lot of the snakes we assumed that they're just working off of instinct and not that intelligent. I think we're starting to realize maybe some people give them way too much credit and want to act like they're puppy dogs, but they definitely are smarter than we thought they were. We now know because we pay more attention that they're smarter than just oh look rat eat rat sit still. So things change just in the hobby alone. Along with science, the more we find out, it's just got to be the problem is you have a big group of people who still believe, no, snakes are dumb. And so they believe everything that a snake does is purely off of instinct. And I mean, I breed ball pythons and they kind of are dumb. Yeah, but no, but... those are dumb. We agree those are dumb. <laughs> snakes, ball, ball pythons are at the bottom. Snakes have a fossil record of approximately 100 million years. They couldn't be that dumb or they wouldn't have. <laughs> they are the most successful group of lizards if that makes sense since snakes and lizards are together are considered squamates they are lizards a subset and they do it with, of lizards, and they do it with no arms or legs <laughs> uh, in the world and it's what they're doing is working so uh they're not they can't be that dumb at the same time i i struggle with the kind of uh 
mindset in the hobby and we tend to a lot of people are just giving these things way too much credit <laughs> it's kind of like it's not it's not either extreme your snake is not going to get bored because that whole part of your brain that, <laughs> that part of your brain that ponders whether you're happy sad amused or bored they don't even have one of those they're not really thinking like that like your yeah. snake doesn't need something to do really <laughs> like robert Having, saw this week on on you, facebook Someone said their snake felt very upset because of the fireworks on July fourth. Hundred percent didn't. I will guarantee it. it didn't. <laughs> well, the funny, the great part was about twenty people were commenting in support. Oh yeah, mine acted really. Yeah, the one was like, I gave my leopard gecko an iPhone to watch, yeah, so it would stay watch amused. movies, so it would <laughs> not be bothered. Oh yeah, wrong with the hobby these days. I tell you, it's you know, and this manifests itself in this trend towards like ridiculously giant cages for tiny snakes and just like because the snake needs stuff to do it's like it, your snake doesn't need anything to do it's perfectly content to sit motionless for days or even months in some cases it's not they're not thinking like that um it's having a larger cage that gives some running room for something is good because if you don't use muscles they tend to atrophy and having a, more places to go gives you more opportunities for that animal to do something even however menial you know, if a snake's sitting on a branch, it has to flex a bunch of muscles and it, to hold on to said branch, which case you might have better muscle tone and an overall higher level of just total fitness um, than if it's just sitting on the floor in a tub on a piece of newspaper. Uh, but if it's, and, if, and that's also going to translate into, you know, a more healthy, longer lived animal as opposed to one who's just eating, it, eating, eating and sitting there growing obese. It depends a lot on the species and there's no that's one that fits all. This idea that like, everything needs a big ass cage it's like and that racks are somehow i mean you you'll see you've all seen the sentiment that oh if you keep snakes in racks you're some sort of reprobate yeah Robert, you make racks you're horrible <laughs> yeah it's like you know what if you look at the all the inventions that have made herpeticulture possible the number one thing is the rack system modern herpeticulture can't only exist because of that invention and can only persist because of that it's the only thing that makes it work and the reality that a lot of people that are very well-meaning don't want to confront is that i'm here to tell you some species do way better in racks mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. carpets not necessarily one of those things but things that are like you know moderately sized terrestrial species do better in especially if they're high strung things like water pythons they're not climbing so much and they get high they can be high strung and having not a bunch of visual stimuli to overload them. They do way better in that situation. Uh, white lip pythons. You, know, you got to use mm -hmm. eyes, not in a little tiny tub, but they do better. It's easier to maintain proper humidity for a species like that that really needs it in a rack. It's way more difficult in a cage. So I yeah. got a white lip recently, and I've been really surprised at the amount of humidity that they need. It's been interesting to kind of learn with keeping them. They're awful snakes. I don't know why. You oh, it's, it was the worst decision. <laughs> Instant no, regrets. I mean, you think I'm kidding. I really genuinely have disdain for them. I, I have a bunch, but I hate them. I, these are awful. <laughs> like, they're, I realize that they're kind of the soup du jour now. And everyone, <laughs> white lip python because they're now they're rare and expensive. It's like and they, they're shiny in the sun. They mm -hmm. suck. I've had uh, I've probably dozens of them over like damn near 30 years. I currently have like eight. And they all hate me. They're fast. <laughs> They're super fast, crazy lunatics that need constantly decent humidity, or they won't shed right. Or yeah, if they're they're one of those species, like if you 
if you forgot to water them one week, they'd be dead by the next week. Like they don't tolerate running. You can't run those. Those are ring pythons. Run them out of water for like two days, and they're drop dead on you. Like rainbow boas. Yeah, they're not. They're not the easiest snake to keep happy. And even yeah. when you bend over backwards to keep them happy, they still hate you for it. Mostly. For every one person on Instagram with their black white lips showing off how tame it is, there's like nine more people like bleeding, whimpering in the corner. Yeah, from their black white lips. It's like no, I just I just got blackheads too, and I feel like I'm going to be that way with them as well. Blackheads are. Have you ever kept rosy boas? I haven't. Have you, James? I have. They're like a, blackheads are like an eight foot rosy boa where they act like, hey. I'm I'm not bite out of nowhere. I'm your, I'm your friend, the rosy boa. It's like, whack, and then they turn what? their head sideways. Yes. snap their head like straight sideways without yes. any warning and get you. Yeah, just, that's exactly what head, happened they're, with me. They're moving and then all of a sudden they just turn their head to the side, start chewing on you for no fucking yeah. reason. Don't, don't I've learned you them. can't trust those fuckers. They're not that smart, I swear. Like, <laughs> No, they're, they're seriously <laughs> dumb. I can tell with, that like, already. All of mine, like. Every time I'm trying to feed the adults, my males live in a rack, but it's a rack where there's like each tub has seven square feet of floor space. So there's huge bins, the males, which I don't let them get too big. But every time I pull on the drawer open and it smells rats, it immediately flies out, goes crazy, and then almost always bites the rim of the tub. <laughs> and like a half an hour, he's trying to kill and eat the tub, which is obviously not going to happen. It's just like, what are you doing? So they act just like hog nose. So so, Nick, I, I, I think I saw a post from you at one point that yours ate a paper towel. Yeah. That happened it, to me, too. And when I posted that, up, I had, like, all these other people, like, oh, yeah, my black guy would do that, too. <laughs> it happened to me. I didn't even know yeah, it everybody's did it until it dumb. It's not just mine. I got mixed views, like, uh, uh, what to do. I decided to just get it out of there, so I just palpated it out. No big deal. It was fine. Still fine. But it's just like, are you kidding me? Like, you ate a paper towel? Like, they're just... I've had several that would have eaten the snake hook any number of times. They grabbed the snake hook, you know, and just, yeah, they're not. Did you guys, did you guys see that picture a while back of the Woma that ate a snake yeah, hook? Yeah, I showed it to you. That's right. You a did. I didn't see the picture, but I am not at all surprised. As I it ate the whole hook. I've bred Womas for years and still have them. And it's like, they're not much better. <laughs> <laughs> the blackheads in that regard. Like, it ate the crooked part of the hook, which was the amazing. Like it didn't eat the the butt. It ate the like. How, did, how does it get it down there that fast? Is my you question. No, it's like you think. Like at no point did anybody like the alarm bells go off. Like <laughs> exactly. Like maybe stop it. <laughs> I, I got this long. I can't move my body now that I got this long metal stick in it. Like a, <laughs> so, I don't know. Nick Brandon Wheeler asked, "How the fuck do you palpate a paper towel?" What? Brandon Wheeler asked, how the fuck do you palpate a paper towel? I palpated the rat, but it ate a rat, and then also the paper towel at the same time. Oh. The rat was down so you first. just pushed, pushed the whole thing back I out? I the rat, pushing with the rat until I got to the paper towel. Oh. Fun times. Yeah. Mine just and regurged, and I was really happy about it. The paper towel came out halfway, or came out all the way. The rat came out halfway, sat it down, and it swallowed the rat again. Jesus. <laughs> 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 It didn't right. come completely out, but it was, you know, what you'd expect it to look like. <laughs> Waste not, won't not. <laughs> right back in the, it was the next day. I'm like, oh, I guess, well, all right, whatever. Like, they're, nice. I like blackheads, but they're not. They're See, not that's bad. funny, because then you have things like green trees, where if you sneeze the wrong way, it dies on the stick. I don't even get me started with those. <laughs> like, the, you know, I don't even keep green trees anymore, because I cannot handle the green tree python community. And I say that, because, uh, well, because it's true. 
But uh, <laughs> and I, it's not a blanket indictment of the Green Tree Python community. I know people that are knowledgeable and they're really into it, and it's like, and they know their stuff. But that's a small minority of people in the hobby, in that that sector of the hobby, and it's just the rest of them. I just can't even deal with it. It's like they so. Just, they're so the what's most, worse, the diamond super, people or the or the green tree people? The green tree python. They're opposite ends of the same spectrum. One group doesn't know what they're talking about, but pontificates endlessly as if they did. And the other group actually does know what they're talking about, but pontificates just to belittle you and make you feel small. <laughs> and it's just... But at least... What are, what are the mean, hosts of this group, show? They, they the are thing. right, though. They, they have the information mostly right. So there's that. They're just not cool about it. And the other group thinks they know everything, and they know less than nothing because what they think they know is wrong. This is the part where Corey goes, I also got a green tree python. Shush. And it's true, but. <laughs> oh my God. It's just nuts. Like, it, it, I was at a, I was a speaker at a, a boreal snake symposium, but, oh geez, probably six, seven years ago now. Uh, and the keynote speaker was a, a biologist named Daniel Natush, who I know I've known for years. And Daniel did a lot of field work in New Guinea on green tree pythons, you know, tagging, bagging, tagging, weighing them, and, you know, taking coordinates and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, He'd cataloged uh, just over like a thousand and seven. It was just over a thousand great wild green tree pythons all over New Guinea. Uh, and, and he gave the last talk there. There's all these like well known chondro breeders of the day who are all there and they just could not understand or accept the chondros are little tiny snakes. They just couldn't believe it. Like it's like they're just like completely, completely and utterly like unwilling to accept actual evidence. It's like they're just grasping at any straws because it turns out they're really never above 500 grams like oh, yes. 500 grams is a massive one and you know number of chondros over in that thousand sample he had the number of them that were over a thousand grams was like single digits it was literally like one percent we have snake room uh, scientists where they the only stuff they know is what they saw in their snake room that is it and they re and at that same symposium, Greg Maxwell was there, and he wrote in his book that, "Oh, don't even try to breed your females until they're at least a thousand grams." I'm like, "What?" Like, well, thankfully, your co-author put out a green tree book insane. that is that says all of this. This is this is insane. Like, it's like, and they're just like, and you should have seen these guys just grasping at straws. Like, well, what if it's is it possible that the bigger females are using the habitat differently and are just not being detected? It's like, no, they don't get that big. It's just literally that simple. It's like, <laughs> well, well, I've got this other animal and it's just this bloodline just gets really big. It's like, no, you just fucking feed it too much food. That's you're killing. And you wonder why. And these guys wonder why their chondros lay 47 eggs in a clutch, two eggs hatch and the snake's dead by its eighth birthday. And they wonder why it's like because it was never supposed to be that big. It was never supposed to be bigger than 400 grams and lay more than 10 eggs. And when you make it huge, a 2,000 gram jungle carpet sized chondro, it's going to lay a ton of eggs. None of them are going to hatch. Those things are going to drop dead because it's the chondro equivalent of a thousand pound human. How long would you live if you weighed a thousand pounds? Not very long. What would your reproductive success be? Probably pretty low, I suspect. It's it's just not. Well, that's one of those. That's one of those snakes where people talk about uh, a small space is not good for a snake. Or those things will sit in a spot on a branch for weeks, and they'll yeah. come down, get food, and go back to that spot for weeks. I have found one green tree python in the wild, which is one more than most of those guys, so I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> and it is Their lifestyle is like, they're in this tree. They, and during the day, when there's they might get eaten by something, they will go higher up in the canopy, kind of hide out, 
at night, they'll come down and get into ambush position around the trunk of that tree about with their nose about six inches off the ground. And and they'll just they'll go up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down for like a week. Then they'll move over the next tree over and do the same thing, repeat. That's just this. That's the whole thing. They're not doing a lot. It's just up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Same tree. Uh, and then they'll maybe they'll move over a tree occasionally. It's they they're not they're not doing a lot. Well, our buddy John Grant said in the chat, obesity has become the norm in the hobby, and it really has. You see people breeding a snake that, and then a bunch of people jump on. Go, well, that thing's too small to breed. You know, obviously it's not. It had yeah. a healthy clutch or litter, and it's fine. Oh yeah, no, it's it's crazy, and this is how in people have indoctrinated themselves into believing just a bunch of nonsense. That things need to be bigger than they are. And that comes from a problem with uh, people tend to convolute and conflate two totally separate concepts. One is maximum size and one is adult size. Uh, they read in a book, well, I see that barnex scrub pythons can be 14 feet long. Ergo, barnex scrub pythons need to be 14 feet long. <laughs> and they feed things to their expectations mm -hmm. of size. I have Every week I have to explain to somebody like, no, it's okay to get a coastal carpet. They're not going to be 12 feet long. Yeah, I remember every everything I read when I first got into reptiles twenty years ago was coastals get twelve foot. Absolute nonsense. I, I would. I've I would, never seen I, one. I'll, you show me a twelve foot coast. I got a big check waiting for you. You can find me a genuine <laughs> big twelve foot freaking coastal carpet. Like it's nuts. Like they just don't get that. I mean, it, it's kind of okay. Let's say you found one snake that was twelve feet. Who cares? That doesn't matter. One the outliers just. Throw I can your find you a seven and a half foot human. But that's yeah. not the norm. I can find you seven and a half foot tall Chinese basketball player. Remember Yao Ming? <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like the tallest guy ever in China. It's like, would you look at Yao Ming and say, fuck, I guess Chinese guys are seven <laughs> foot five inches tall. No, that's insane. Everybody on average is like two foot shorter. He is that tall, but he is the outlier. You don't measure, you don't draw conclusions based on the freaky outlier. You, you take the average, which is way smaller. It's like people think, oh, green anacondas, you know, 32 feet. Average adult, fun fact, average adult length for a female green anaconda, 17 feet. Yeah. A little bit different. It's, you don't, the, the giant one, that's just one lucky snake that never got eaten and maybe it lived in a really productive habitat and it had an unusual amount of food and it managed to not get killed. Or like one story from an explorer in 1850. Yeah, and it's like, and, it, and because they're, snakes are, the other concept I'm having to explain to people all the time is that there's no such thing as maximum size at all, like none, because snakes don't have that. There is no genetic limitation on size at all. They never stop growing. They are indeterminate growers. They will continue to grow forever until they die. Now, that slows way down. But this is how you sometimes see things that are just ridiculously oversized. Like, I was at a reptox, I'll never forget, and the coolest looking snake, and I'm sure it's long dead, but it was a Honduran milk snake. And I thought it was a goddamn ring python at first. It was like... <laughs> This thing was as big around as my wrist. I was like, are you kidding me? It's like, it was awesome because, like, I've never seen it. It's like, it's nowhere near. It's like, how did this thing even get this big? Like, I'm sure it died young, as you would expect. But it was like, you can make things grow to unnatural sizes um, because, you know, there's no limitation on caloric intake in captivity. It's just as much as you feed it. And people think, and they feed to their expectations of size, mm -hmm. which do not necessarily reflect any real, you know, what's healthy for the snake. Well, it's also that my snake's got to eat every week on Thursday. And and if, you, if you did that, you would end up with such an obese carpet python. I can't even <laughs> fathom. <laughs> it's these, but this is like, 
this is one of those times like I'll be on a podcast and I'll say what, like what I'm about to say, which if anybody actually listened and took to heart would be like, I'm about to tell you like the secret to breeding difficult species. No one's going to listen. They're not going to listen. They're just, they never do. I've been saying this stuff for years. Like, I, cause I do get people like, well, how do you breed all this different stuff? It's like, I, I don't make a secret. I just tell you. And then no, everybody thinks like people tend to want to think that things that they perceive as difficult to be that they are genuinely difficult. They think that the solution to those problems must somehow be gleaned by thinking outside of the box. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's not get back in the box. The solution is completely in 100%, almost always in the box. They just, so they don't, they just overlook that. It's like, you want to breed a difficult species. Let's take like scrub pythons. And I'm going to lump Boland's pythons in there. Cause they're just a montane scrub. Apodora, throw Apodora in there too. Yeah. Not really related, not so related, but there are some similarities. You know how you get stuff like that to breed? Quit messing with them. Leave them the fuck alone. What happens, two things, with like scrub pythons and apodora also. People see, oh, these things, there was a 17-foot apodora found. Must be huge. It's like, you know, I have seen male apodora producing sperm plugs at four feet long and the diameter of a quarter. Wow. Yeah, males. But I'm saying, like, that's, why do, I mean... When you this like tendency to make things way too big and way too fat because that's yeah. what I, think. I well, have that's, seen I have seen several fourteen, fifteen foot scrub pythons. You know what I've never seen? A fourteen foot scrub python on a clutch of eggs. Not once have I ever seen yeah. I've seen a shitload of seven and eight foot scrub pythons on eggs. Had one this year again. I I have a Wamina female, she laid more eggs than she laid last year. She's laid the last two years. She is the size of a reasonable sized carpet python. She's maybe seven feet. <laughs> it's like breeds like crazy. Like this is nuts. I've got a Halmahera python. She's ten years old. She's all of maybe six feet long. Maybe. Wow. And she's, I've had a difficult time getting a male. Those things are a nightmare to yeah. get acclimated and healthy. I've got two males now, but they're they need you know so they're but they're you know many years younger, uh, and they're acclimated and doing well now. But she's obviously going through the motions of follicle development at this tiny size. Like I would. She's of a size that I would hesitate to breed a carpet python. She's clearly cycling. She turns jet black every winter. Wow. Nearly jet black. Yeah, it's but it's a little tiny thing. And when you make them too big and too fat, they don't ovulate. And this is the problem why nobody, all these people, look at the number of people in the hobby that think every year they're going to get Boland's python eggs. Because they put the snakes together, they breed like crazy, they build giant follicles. They think they got it. Yep. They reabsorb and nothing happens. Yep. Repeat. And then what do they do the next year? They do something totally different. It's like, well, that didn't work. They think there's a magic recipe that that if they just find the right recipe, that it will work. And it's not about the recipe at all. It's about stability. Twitchy snakes that are easily stressed want stable conditions. This constant every year, well, that didn't work. I'll try something else. Well, that didn't work. I'll try something else. You're stressing them out. This follicular maturation cycle with all these pythons is a couple year long process. So when you get a clutch of eggs from a ball, as a matter of a ball python or carpet or whatever, that train left the station a couple years earlier. It's like a long term cyclical thing. And if you keep changing what you do every year, you prevent the establishment of like a seasonal rhythm. And you're stressing the animal out. Just quit doing that. Just do the same thing. It didn't work last year. Just do the same thing for five straight years. You'll get a clutch. Well, I'm, sure that, I'm sure the same thing applies when people are, you know, they, they try a couple seasons, get tired, give it to their friend, and then we're restarting this whole thing all yeah, over again. It's just, it, 
there are things, you know, ball pythons and stuff, which are entirely oh. domesticated. Ball Most, pythons, you stick to snakes in a box, you get eggs. It's so well, easy. Well, they're domesticated, so all the rules <laughs> are gone. Like, you see all the hallmarks of domestication with ball pythons, you know, early onset of sexual reproduction, non a trend towards non-seasonal breeding. Yeah, you can breed them whenever you want. Mm -hmm. All that stuff wasn't the case 30 years ago. It is now because there's, they're just, they've become domesticated at this accelerated rate. I would argue that a lot of boa constrictors are getting close to that point. Oh, I agree. Where they're, you know, uh, as as just one of the hallmarks of domestication. So Lots of people always ask me how I breed boas. I was like, I just put the male in there. Yeah. And then he does it. Now, <laughs> if you got some like wild caught ones from Surinam yeah, or something, it'd probably be a little more difficult. <laughs> it's like it's, but the domesticated ones, the nearly domesticated ones, every generation of captive breeding and every generation, thus every generation further removed from a wild ancestor things get easier because we are inadvertently domesticating them because we are we're putting positive selection pressure for two on two things without even realizing we're doing it and that is less seasonal reproduction i.e. you need less stimulus to induce a fertile mating and rodent feeding because the ones that needed more stimulus to get breeding didn't didn't breed as much they left fewer offspring behind the ones which ones the ones that were less picky about the breeding season aspects of it, they bred more, led more offspring, left more offspring behind into the captive gene pool, and then the next generation repeat, repeat, repeat. Yeah, just same, natural selection at work. Same thing with prey selection. We select for animals that eat domesticated rats and mice. That's what we do because, mm -hmm. you know, I breed a lot of stuff. Most of the things I breed want to eat lizards. And they're not getting those stinking lizards. It's not happening. I have never fed a lizard to a snake. I'm not going to start. And sometimes I'm pulling my hair out. But they're not getting the freaking lizards. But you do, the animals that were like absolutely just abs convinced that some skink was going to walk around the corner, they generally didn't live to reproduce. Thus, they didn't pass those genes along for being so locked in on that. The ones who were successful, who ate rodents first, they grew the fastest, laid the most eggs and pass their genes along disproportionately, and the ball gets moved forward. Uh, I wrote an article on domestication of reptiles uh, for a magazine quite a number of years. It's been a few years ago now, but uh, I gave the example of uh, hognose snakes. Uh, and it was a picture of a hognose a friend of mine had produced, and the hognose snake was one day old. One day, and it's eating a frozen pinky mouse. One day after it hatched. That's that was my mind, and they eat... Ever. Yeah, <laughs> they don't like, eat here's a species rodents. that eats lizards and frog, lizards <laughs> and amphibians, and it is eating a frozen European domesticated house mouse. It's not even native to North America, out of off of some freaking tweezers, twenty four hours after it crawled out of the egg. And that's because the reality is because the Western hog noses that really wanted frogs and toads died. They didn't survive to make picky babies. So it just kind of over generational time, it just guides itself towards this like oh they just eat like like corn snakes you think corn snakes are eating pinky mice no in the wild no they're eating gnolls and stuff but they just eat pinkies now don't they because we've <laughs> literally <laughs> bred that out of them even without trying so nick i've got a qu uh, question from the chat this is actually one of my former students uh caleb asked would you say domestication of snakes snake breeds is more a negative or a positive for the reptile community uh I hesitate to use the word breeds because really we're talking species. About, yeah. Uh, people always want to conflate breeds as in dogs and cats with like species, which they're not. But uh, is it a positive or a negative? I think uh, I'd say it's a net positive uh, in that it is 
probably better for the animals if they are more suited to captivity, um, and which is what we're doing. We're making animals that are more tailor-made for the conditions that we keep them in, and thus they do better and benefit from that, because the ones that weren't, you know, didn't pass along their genes, or at least not to the same extent. So I think it's a net positive. I do think that it comes at a cost, like all things do, and this is part where I'm going to bag on some stuff that you guys are all probably into, and I'm into, but part of that trend towards domestication has been morph-related, and mm -hmm. while a lot of people have this tendency to think that morphs are all good, uh, morphs have caused equal amounts of problem and pain in the hobby than they have good, in my estimation. Um, there are a lot of species that we no longer can even keep because they all died out because of morphs and not because they couldn't have been bred, but because there's only there's the amount of like cage space, rack space and attention span of reptile keepers in this country or any other country is finite. That's a fine. There's only so much cages. There's only room for a certain amount of snakes or whatever. And when those cages, you know, 30 years ago, those cages were what people wanted what people typically did, oh, they bred, you know, whatever, and they sold those and they got something that was that what was driving the market and driving what people perceived to be desirable was rare or more difficult species. So people wanted Timor pythons or whatever. They wanted this the rare, more difficult stuff. And that was how things got pushed forward. And starting in the early two thousands, when Peter Call decided that piebald ball python should be twenty five thousand dollars and people started to view the ball python market as a giant Ponzi scheme, effectively. Uh, it drove all the interest into that because there was this perceived financial reward that worked out for some people and didn't work out very well for a lot of people. But well, some people did all right. Hell, I did all right. I'm not going to lie. But it, when all of the cage space and attention span and focus and effort is stops being put into rare and difficult species, no progress is made because all that money, time, effort, and all that space went into making the latest and greatest designer version of a common super easy species. I mean, I, I have ball pythons still, not a ton. I keep trying to have none, but I probably have 30 adults. I don't know. I can't seem to, they're like trading cards almost. You almost can't not have them. <laughs> I've loaned out and given away most of my adults. And then I just seem like there's just more adults. I don't understand that, but it, it snake math. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it, it, it comes at a price and like, okay, well look at like, how far along like we were as far as getting reasonably understanding of breeding Boland's pythons to bring those guys up again 25 years ago. And then now look at where we are now. We're barely any further along now than we were a quarter of a century ago. Why? Because everybody started breeding morphs. When everybody started breeding morphs of Burmese pythons and retics, they quit breeding other big snakes. And now you can't get a South African rock python, python natal lenses, whole species of python that was here in the United States and even got bred a couple times that has died out, completely unavailable, and now because of that Lasiak nonsense, can never be imported again. So we will never be able to have a, a you know, a python made lenses. And the reason is our own damn fault because people were too busy trying to make the, a, you know, an albino green labyrinth berm in the same cage, and they couldn't be bothered to do it. It's not that hard of a snake to keep. It's not that hard of a snake to breed. It was just apathy. And the idea that someone else will do it, um, someone else will do it. I don't need, I can focus on these trivial things because there'll always be guys like you, Nick. There'll always be guys like you who'll keep bloodlines pure and I'll keep track. I'll do all this and keep track of all that. It's like, and that's just a, 
a fallacy. That's a comfortable lie that people tell themselves to assuage their conscience when they know they're probably doing something sketchy. I don't have to yeah. take responsibility for my action because there'll always be guys like you, Nick, who'll keep all the bloodlines pure so I can go piss in the gene pool for everybody else. Like, so, Nick, I was wondering how this kind of ties into the fact that, you know, you tend to be more interested in, you know, locality projects and, you know, more pure lineage stuff as opposed to mixing various different subspecies. Um, and it seems like that would all just that would all kind of tie in together. To me, when you start hybridizing snakes, you've just ruined them because these all these things are different for a reason. They have their every species or locality. They all have their own little evolutionary story that all these forces and events and things that shape them to be what they are and where they are and why they're unique from place to place is it's they're the culmination of this long evolutionary story when you breed those things together you just basically undid everything that made them unique in the first place for the sake of what making some flash in the pan morph combo thing that like no one's going to give a crap about in a year anyway because that's it's a shot of green green tree python people it's the not the newest thing that's like the ultimate expression of that the boa people are not a whole lot better the carpet people are definitely not any better it's this like all I you know it's like the only this idea that the only thing that matters all that matters is morphs and everything else be damned and you know I think it's an unhealthy mindset for the hobby it, it's more the ball python people like literally exemplify that the most and that nobody hates ball pythons more than ball python people ball python breeders hate ball pythons ask them how many normal ball pythons they got zero how many do they produce zero or trying to produce zero what happens to the occasional normals or low percentage possible heads that do get produced by a lot of these guys they become feeder snakes for other things i mean you have you've gotten to where you're the actual natural form of the species you're supposed to really love so much is so worthless you're not even it's, it's life is not even worth putting a mouse into you'd rather just cull it immediately and give it to somebody to feed to a cobra and we all know that this goes on Nobody wants to talk about it, but we all know this is true. I'm not breaking. This isn't breaking news. It's been happening for a while. I mean, it's like that's if you're breeding some stuff that you think it's the best course of action is to kill a percentage of the offspring. You, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you should be breeding those things. Like, <laughs> it's like why are you breeding yeah. something that you think you need to kill a certain percentage of is the best course of action. It's One like, of the things I've heard James say before is that there isn't even such a thing as a normal ball python anymore because they're all het for various different things because there's just been so much. That's what everyone's focusing yeah. on. It's like a corn snake. Unless you go catch right. one yourself, it's going to be het for nine different things. Um, it, these, I just like think, you know, if you're into morphs and crazy colors and patterns, that's cool. I have a bunch of that stuff, too. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you get so blinded by that that you lose any appreciation at all, for the natural beauty that was there at the beginning anyway, you've probably gone too far down that rabbit hole. I mean, a, a normal python's a pretty cool snake. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, it's looked at like almost like, a, oh, my God, there's a normal in there. Like, it's the worst thing. I had one normal female ball hatch uh, a couple years ago uh, by accident. It was a parthenogen. There was a two-egg clutch, and it was two partho babies. So the makeup of the female, it shouldn't have even possible in, through a sexually produced clutch to make a normal. Uh, but there was a female partho normal and there was a partho super inchy um, in the clutch. And uh, I, I actually found a home for it only because it was a partho female and it had an interesting story in that it literally had no father. It was a half clone. I was able to find a home for this thing. Other than that, no one just, you didn't even give it away. It was worth less than nothing. And that's, I think that's, that's sad to me that we've gone that far, that we prize things only for the number, like the ball python community's general mindset is of animals value is only 
tied to how many broken genes it has at the same time. How genetically fucked up we've managed to make it the more fucked up the better and if it's not fucked up at all it's worthless it's kind of got that backwards it is crazy if if you're breeding something and you look at a a litter or a clutch and at any point you think ah man it sucks that i got these normals you probably should definitely quit breeding whatever that thing is well why i mean what's wrong with a normal ball python nothing this idea that like a value that something is only worthwhile i'll never forget it was the daytona expo i think i was speaking at a Morelia symposium there a number of years ago and i went out to dinner with all the you know people that you know because you always know people in the hobby but you're never in the same room with them from around the country so you go out to dinner with a bunch of people and i had some annulated tree boas that i just picked up some additional ones at that expo and i was like all stoked because i got another pair of uh unrelated annulated tree boas and one of the guys there it's not really around the hobby so much anymore but he used to be back in those days and he's like oh those are so cool i really thought about getting into those but it just seemed like you know, kind of a dead end project since there's no morphs. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you're not, that's, it's like, it's a dead end because there's no mutants. (laughs) (laughs) There's no mutants. So why bother? Like, it's just, it's crazy. Well, so my, my favorite carpet pythons are inland carpet pythons and and there are no morphs of them in the U S and I hope it stays that way. I don't, and I love them. I think they're the best. I I I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not really into the whole silver pepper thing. It's like, yeah, it's cool, I guess. But I, I hope they don't ever show up, honestly, because it's just like going to lead people to act like a fool with them. Well, it's uh, like Brazilian rainbow boas. There are morphs, and I don't want any of them. Well, I, the love, I love morphs Brazilians. Supposed to be train wrecks, so there's a reason. It's like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you couldn't give me a Brazilian rainbow boa morph. It's just like, uh, well, yeah. you know, you have all these. It's well, the crazy thing with Brazilian rainbow boa, boa morphs to me is. All right, I can see in the ball python morph. So you're lightening this color. It looks nicer. You're adding more orange, more whatever. In a rainbow, all the morphs take away the best part of the rainbow boa to me. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. It's, it's it's like you're just. I can either make it really, really light or I can make it gray, but it will never be nice and red and bright and shiny again. Yeah, because a bright red snake with black accents is pretty hard to beat. Yeah. It's pretty tough to beat. It's like, what are you going to, you might make something, this idea that morphs are an improvement, I think is something that needs to kind of hit the sunset. It's like, it's like they are different, but that doesn't, different does not necessarily mean better just because it's new and different and people have short attention spans. They always want what's new, what's new, what's new. It's like, it's like new doesn't mean better. I think you're starting to see turn the corner with ball pythons and that for the longest time, for 20 years, it was basically the more genes you can pack in a snake, the better. And But sometimes you probably all notice, whether you say it or not out loud, is like, we all know. It's like, gee, once you get past a certain point, they look like shit. Oh, yeah. Most, yeah, Robert and I were talking about the other day. Like Once what? you get five genes, most five-gene ball pythons just always end up looking like some sort of super spinner blast bullshit. They all kind of look like that because you've blown all the paint off of the snake. I mean, it's like there's – and there are a lot of like two-gene snakes that are way better looking than most five-gene snakes. Oh, it's yeah. like people need to – Instead of just a mad race to pack as many broken genes into one snake, regardless of the consequences, you're starting to see a trend now towards, hey, how about we make combinations that look good <laughs> or stay nice looking, that are genuinely cool? You know, maybe there's less genes, you know. I mean, I've made, I made, what did I do? I, I made a, I mean, it's my, I made, this was a few years ago, I made a, it was like a pastel, banana, cinnamon, uh, something else fire or something and i traded it for a banana cinnamon that wasn't the other two things <laughs> it was like because frankly 
with less jeans, it just looks way better. Like, I don't want all this other stuff. It's just too much. It just- well, look at Justin Kabilka. Justin Kabilka could put every jean into one snake right now if he wanted to. He's got all the jeans at his place, but he tries to make good-looking snakes with the jeans. Yeah. They way- go, to, go together. They don't but wash out. Well, that's the thing. How much better? Imagine a hobby, if you will. Imagine where people actually paid attention to what they're doing and had a real plan and an idea. I want to do this because I think it looked like this and have a plan and a strategy and work towards that. And instead, it's mostly people just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. Uh, even if it's so, bound to be stupid. I mean, it's like well, I just I saw somebody. It was like it was a couple of years ago, and I, I got into one of those. I started getting turning into those internet arguments like, no, don't do it, Nick. Don't take the bait. Just let him be dumb. And it was like he he was convinced that he was going to make a uh, uh, hidden gene Woma, which is the worst name for and most misleading name ever, a single gene mutation that's het for dead. But he was going to make a hidden gene Woma champagne. Like, no, "No, you don't need to do that. It's going to be a dead white snake. Why? It's like. Well, it's like, well, when you breed them to themselves, it makes a dead white snake. When you breed champagne, oh, no. it makes a dead white snake. When you breed a spider to a champagne, dead white snake. When you breed a spider to a woma, dead white snake. You don't need to connect the last two dots because <laughs> any amount of reason will tell you it's going to be a dead white snake that's going to be gurked out for like a week and then drop dead. Yeah, but like, I can make a super jag carpet. I can do it. I know I can but, be the but one. Somebody's got to do it. You know, it's like, no, you don't. Like, there's a local guy here. Like, I don't talk to him now. He had a falling out, but. <laughs> I wrote an article, a different article. Actually, this is like a column and everything about how the same mutations occur multiple times in different species. And I gave a bunch, three different examples where the exact same identical mutations had occurred multiple times in unrelated species. And I gave one of those examples was spider ball pythons and jaguar carpets. Yeah. Same thing. And in there, I, you know, here's the, the traits in the heterozygotes, same, same, same. Traits in the homozygotes, same, same, same. Picture of a dead jag, super jaguar. Picture of a dead super spider. And you'd have thought the world had come off its axis because I dared say that Kevin McCurley lied and said there was no super spider. Here's a fucking picture of it. Same thing. Thumbprint smudge in the head. White snake. No lung development. Lung is gone or non-developed. And they asphyxiate. Like, it's there it is. And, oh, my God. The number of people that came out of the woodwork with pitchforks and torches to tell me I'm an idiot. Kevin wouldn't lie. But if you think about embryology and the way that cells migrate, it makes perfect sense that they're the same thing. They are the same thing. <laughs> the idea of like lethal white mutations, if you start looking in literature, lethal white mutations where the homozygote is a white thing that's not viable is really common. There's some in dogs. There's one in chinchillas. There's two in horses. There's a bunch of these lethal white mutations. They're well known in mammals. So it's not surprising that they exist in reptiles also. Yeah. But uh, this local guy, I told him this story and everything. And he's like, oh, I want to see one. I'm like, don't do it. It's just going to be a dead white snake, like I'm telling you. He's like, oh, I want to see for myself. And then he did it. And he hatched with it. It's, a, it's like, send me a picture of his phone. I'm like, it's, yeah, it's exactly what I told you. <laughs> and then I said, do yourself a favor. I go, don't put this on the internet, dude. Don't do it. And he's like, oh, but he's one of those people who just has to get attention um, at, at all costs. So he did. And wouldn't you know it? The same mob came out. Oh, there must be some other genes in there. It's like, no, it's literally just that simple. It's <laughs> this idea that there just is no super form. It's like, Oh, well, they're just, you can have one copy, but you can't have two. It's like, that's, that's not how anything works. I forgot about that lethal white syndrome in, uh, in paint horses. Yeah. I remember dealing with that growing up with horses that you could have an all white baby born and it. It'll immediately colic and die. Yep. I think it's two copies of Merle and a dog. 
That was the dog one yep. I'm talking, that's what yeah. I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, there's there's a chinchilla one. There's another one in horses, Avero or something of that, something similar. I'm probably butchering the name because I'm definitely not a large mammal guy. <laughs> well, we've talked to Travis Wyman before, and he and he talked about we talked about bug eyed like boas when you get like albinos moving around the uh, the lack of melanin, moving that into the DNA really fucks up a lot of shit. Like when you get rid of melanin, you get rid of color, a lot of stuff starts to mess up. It, how technically you want to get into it but what happens is um early in embryonic development you have an area called the neural uh tube the neural cord the neural tube uh that is basically what will ultimately form the spine in a vertebrate but early in embryogenesis that area is basically a factory that that is that grows different cells of different types that then migrate out of the end of the neural tube to different points of the embryo. They set up shop, those cells proliferate, and they form the various tissues, organs, whatever of the body. Uh, for whatever reason, we do not understand. And it works the same way. It was shown to work the same. And, you know, it's in mammals and doesn't matter. There's a paper on California king snake. It doesn't matter what it is. In all vertebrates, it works the same way. Pigment precursor cells are called melanocytes. These are the cells that will ultimately become pigments. All pigments are sort of as melanocytes. Those melanocytes can't migrate out of that neural tube themselves, by themselves. They basically hitch a ride with other cell types. Like, oh, you're going to the to the rectum? I was like, oh, I need to go down there and put some pigment on that scale. It's like they just hitch a ride. So they're just hitchhiking with other cell types, and they co-migrate with those cell types. So when you rearrange where the pigment goes, you are also at times rearranging whatever it was hitching a ride with. And this is why you have problems with some morphs, why they have baggage, because sometimes the things you're rearranging cause problems, neurological deficits being the most obvious example. But there are, yeah, because most genes do multiple things or have a role. A gene might have a couple of different jobs, and we focus on this its role in color and pattern, yeah, but it might have some other ancillary function that has very little, if nothing, to do with color and pattern that has a role in something else also. And when you, when it, when a gene isn't doing its color and pattern job correctly, it's not doing any of its jobs correctly because it's broken. And sometimes that gets you into trouble. We shouldn't be surprised that there are morphs that have problems. We should be thankful and surprised, really, that so many of them don't have problems. So I was that, just about to say that we should celebrate mm -hmm. the albinos and leucistic things that do survive. The, mm -hmm. the number of mutations of any species that are that have problems is actually pretty small. It's mostly. You know, because you almost expect it to be higher, uh, but we shouldn't be surprised with that. And there are a few in carpets. There's, I mean, there's more in ball pythons than anything, but I think that's just because they've turned over every single rock in West Africa <laughs> looking for these things, and you just found them all. <laughs> it's like so you, have, you have a larger sample size because there's. Yeah, so I just recently did a zebra to zebra pairing, Ooh. and I know, and so um, you know, I made, I ended up hatching out two super zebras from the clutch. Um, but I lost six eggs in the process. <laughs> I'll give and you a, I'll give they you were, a, every a single one I guess. cut the embryo had a fucked up tail. Yeah. And so, yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. That's, yeah. uh, what it is with those guys. I don't, no one knows the exact sort of causal mechanism causes that, but what you find with super zebras and the same with batik blood pythons and the super batiks, the same exact mutation is that. A lot of them die in the shell uh, really close to the finish line. With the mm -hmm. super zebras, it seems like for something that should incubate about 55 days, 
like 42 to 45 yeah, it was right days. around 40 days that i lost yeah. almost all of them yeah and at that based on their stage of development about 40 odd days there's something that basically embryos will develop right up until the point where they need something in a genetic sort of way that they don't have and then they just abort it's like oh we don't have that we're not doing it. it's like there's something that happens around that point with those embryo with that with that mutation or that combination uh, that they have a hard time with and that a lot of them die. I would say you having two make it and six not make it is really high. I Usually was, it's about 25, in my experience, about one in four super. That's super what it was. It was a clutch of 24 and six died. So it was exactly one fourth. It's, no, I'm saying like of the super oh. zebras you have. Oh, did I actually got that many? 25%, right. about one in four actual super zebra yeah. embryos in yeah. my yeah. experience. No, I, 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 I didn't think I was going to get any. I was shocked that I got two. So, Nick, let me ask you this. I had clutches where one made it and five didn't. I've also had wow. a clutch with eight of them and they all made it. Oh, so. that's crazy. So where do you sit on where it's acceptable to keep around some of these genes, such as spider, jag? Super Z, but these things that yes, they can survive, but we do know there are some issues. Whether some people try to, you know, some issues aren't as bad in some individuals. Where do you sit on us still producing these things in the hobby? I'm, I'm conflicted, and I would be a big, I would be, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I mean, I mean, I've made, I've never made, I've never even owned a spider ball python because I just always thought they kind of made things look less cool, not more cool. I just was never into the aesthetic, but. I've certainly made Jaguar carpets. I hatched them a minute ago. I mean, the first time I've hatched a Jaguar in four years. And even that was just because, like, an animal that was, like, no, I had two clutches of them this year. But animals get old and die, and sometimes you have to, like, pull somebody out of retirement because, oh, shit, I don't have a super super caramel female that isn't a Jag. I've just got this million-year-old female that is who I retired years ago. So I had to, like, breed her except that some of them are going to be Jags so that I can hold back some non-Jags. Um, so, so I actually have like a handful of Jaguars the first time in years. I, I don't know. I didn't want to make a big stink about it. It's like, I just gradually, like a lot of people in the hobby mm -hmm. have just gradually moved away, not like dumped everything and set the place on fire so much, but just kind of like ease down out of it. Just quit, make less and less until you just don't, don't hold me back. And over time, just kind of phase that out. Yeah, as a newer person to the carpet hobby, I haven't picked up any Jags. I don't have a single one in my collection. Some of them are cool. I mean, I don't They're know. cool. They're amazingly Like, I've seen some incredible animals. I sold mine. I was just tired of him flopping around every time I try to feed him like an idiot. I made uh, three Exanthic Caramel Jags. Hmm. There's only four pure coastal ones in the country, near as I can tell. And all of them were my ones an adult female I produced and these three that just hatched. Oh, wow. I wanted to make... It's like long story as to why even there's a female that was supposed to I was supposed to have found a home for and didn't and I chucked the mail in there and I actually got eggs. So <laughs> it's uh yeah, now they're uh I don't know. I'm conflicted. They're not a total train wreck. Usually they eat, they grow, they breed, it's not painful, they don't they're not aware they're doing it, but I wish they wouldn't. And so I'm like <laughs> I just think that in a general sense we'd probably be better off if we didn't make things like that. Uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get on anybody's case for uh, who does continue to make that kind of stuff. I think it's we all got to make our own decisions in that regard. So One thing I feel like oh sorry what were you gonna say, James? No, go ahead. 
I was going to say, so one thing I feel like the carpet python community does really well compared to say like the ball python community is, is selective breeding projects. You see a lot more development of traits, you know, like tigers or that sort of thing that aren't necessarily tied to one yeah. gene, um, but just are developed over, you know, long periods of time of breeding. And, and so one of the ones I think I always think about is your ivory jungle project. Yeah, carpets respond to that better than just about anything. Uh, and the reason is, well, there's a concept called phenotypic plasticity. Um, there's a kind of the goalposts of what anything might look like on average for a given species. That's not a static sort of thing. There's a range of variation. And carpets across the board, uh, some species more than others, coastals and jungles and Darwins have a lot more than, you know, inlands, brettles and yeah, know, sure. carpets. But they all have a bit and some have a lot. And when you have that wide range of variation, they respond super well to selective breeding. Um, it takes no time at all. I've got tiger Darwins. I made, I got albinos and I've got normals that are just. I've, I got some my, from you. My pure Darwin tigers are more striped than people, the, the tiger albinos that people bred the tiger coastals into albinos. And mine are pure. It's like it only took two generations. It's literally two generations. It's like if you can stick with something for a couple generations in a carpet project, you'll get somewhere. It's it just, it's really. I don't know why normal Darwins don't get more love. I feel like they're one of the most naturally beautiful yeah, because, subspecies. Well, they produced the first albino in the hobby, and so that became the the Darwin everybody wanted. They're so beautiful on their own. And you know now it's like people, but it's a morph. So yeah, there's always that been there, done that kind of aspect that comes with every morph, anything. And now. Like, I have five clutches of Darwins, so it's about normal for me this year. And, like, I'm like, oh, shit, too many albinos, not enough normals, because the normals mm -hmm. are better. Mm -hmm. so That's interesting. You said uh, pure coastals earlier, and I wanted to ask you this earlier. So where do you sit? If, if you breed a coastal and a jungle, are you mixing species or are you mixing locales? Pure, it's, it's wayward. <laughs> no, nah, it's... I wish I could just tell you, oh, well, it's, you know, there's, it's not like that. It's, uh, what's a coastal carpet? Along the eastern coast of, uh, Australia, from the New South Wales, Queensland border area where coastal, proper coastal carpets really start, all the way to the tip of the Cape York Peninsula, you have three different forms that are genetically distinct. None of them correlate with being a jungle carpet, though. None of them, the jungle carpets were mostly the, the, the breakpoint genetically is in the jungle carpet's range. Two-thirds of it below, one-third of it above that breakpoint. So a gelatin jungle is genetically different than a Palmerston jungle. And they're more different from each other than a Palmerston... A Palmerston jungle is more closely related to a coastal carpet than a gelatin jungle is to the Palmerston jungle. It's not... It's, it's not... It's, mm -hmm. it's complicated. Uh, it's like, what is a coastal carpet? What? It's not very well defined. And the original descriptions for those taxa are garbage. They're just not... They're just like. Can I mean, we agree that jungles aren't yellow and black? I, like, they they can be, but like one thing you can be extremely confident in is if you were to go to you know far north Queensland and get into that old growth rainforest and you found a jungle carpet, the one color you'd probably least likely find is a neon yellow and black. <laughs> <laughs> you won't find that. You'll find you might find like dirty yellow, black, and brown is a really common one where it's like like a goldeny kind of yellow mm -hmm. bordered in black but then with brown sort of flames interspacing between it it's a really sexy look in my opinion but we've bred it out of our captive lineages because it was deemed all for the sake of the and this is 
problem beef I've got with the carpet people. And those are my people. But it's like <laughs> this idea that the only thing that matters is yellow and black. That That's it. But that's the penultimate. Nothing else matters. There's yeah, nothing you lost else everything else. They treat it like it's a morph. It's like, who cares? You know, you know who's sick of yellow and black carpets? Me. 20, a quarter of a century of making them. You know what they look like now compared to 25 years ago? Exactly the fucking same. <laughs> <laughs> because it turns out there's only so much yellow and black you can have. I had a snake. She was produced by Casey Lazic in 1994. She laid a 20 egg clutch and died at 19 years old. She had a stroke, actually, and I had to put her down like a year oh, later. Wow. Oh, wow. Well, she's an old snake, and she never gained muscle. I gave her a year, but, I mean, she'd eat if you put it next to her, but she couldn't shed. I had to. She wouldn't even, couldn't even shit on her own because she had no control over the back of her body, and uh-huh. it never came back. So, But that snake was produced in 1994, and it was the most perfect neon yellow, clean. It was absolute the embodiment of what these people think is perfection. And it was in, and that was achieved in 1994. And if all you can hope for is more of the same, the best you could hope for with jungle carpets is more of that. Just more of the same, more of the same, endlessly more of the same. There's nowhere left to go. It's, and I just like, that's, there's just, there's a lot more to appreciate than just yellow and black. Is a yellow and black snake cool? Yeah, sure. I got a bunch of them. It's, it's cool. But but it's just one thing out of a larger in a larger context. And there's you know if you can't appreciate the brown snakes, the gray snakes, the red snakes, the bluish snakes, there's so much to be interested in. To be just you know it's almost like like it's almost like you know like those moths that get killed in the bug zapper because they're just like oh look at the pretty lights. Drawn <laughs> to the light, it's like it's like that with a jungle carp. It's like there's like nothing else you can appreciate about anything other than this one. I think probably a third of the carpet python community, they're really not into carpets. They're into yellow carpets. It's like they just want yellow snakes. And I think that's, I think they're missing out. Well, I love gelatins and there, I feel like there's so many different directions that gelatins could be taken. Mine didn't go. I got very close to ovulation, but then she reabsorbed. So we'll try again next year. Story of my life there. Right? Been there. <laughs> um, they, the gelatins yeah. never, they never let me down. I do really well with those guys, but it's okay. like I've had every year there's, People in the yeah. hobby, they just don't – I try to talk about all my failures and everything when I get on these podcasts because I think it's helpful to some people who they they think that, you know, you know whatever, quote-unquote, big breeder of this, that, or the other thing, that it's just all success and roses all the time. And it's like – because that's all the image that in social media that everybody puts out. They just yep. – we will oh, yeah. trumpet from the top of the rooftops all of our successes and all the awesome stuff. And then all those clutches, the, the – hundred eggs I threw in the garbage. A hundred eggs in the garbage this year. You don't talk about that. Yep. When it happens to everybody, the deformed babies that I'm going to hatch. Yep. Like, you know, it's like only so far, only one this year. Uh, only one. But I had still, a snake like, with that heart on the outside of its body this year. Seeing that, I had a brain outside of its head one time mm-hmm. in a ball python. Literally oh. sitting on top of its head like wow. a piece of broccoli. It was weird. And all of its <laughs> organs were outside of its body in a sack. Could watch oh. its heart beating. Wow! Yeah, I could watch this one beat too. It was pretty crazy. I've hatched four two-headed carpets. I hatched two wow. two-headed carpets, same clutch of only seven eggs. That's wild. I've yeah. hatched four sets of identical triplets. I mean, people. Bad things happen. We all crap out. We all get slugs. We all have like females ovulate and drop dead. Just like all this mm-hmm. stuff that people have happened to them. It happens to me more than it happens to anybody because just like because I have a lot of snakes. It's just like you see every year has its share of triumphs, but also its share of tragedies and disasters. And it's just, that's part and parcel to the, to the whole thing. I wish we, I wish we could talk about some of the 
hard parts more because it's one of the most discouraging things to think that you're alone in experiencing these things just because no one talks about it. Well, that kind of ties into the question that you asked this week, Corey, because yeah. the question that we asked on our, on our page this week, Corey came up with was, what is your favorite trick for getting a stubborn feeder to eat? And the reason is a lot of people get snakes and you see it all the time. I can't get this to eat. And I think a lot of people feel like if they can't get it to eat, it's their fault. Uh, it might be. It might be. And it definitely <laughs> could be. Sometimes things just don't fucking eat. Uh, when people I, get a snake from somebody and it doesn't when, eat for them, that's the true. Number, there's a couple things you troubleshoot straight away. And usually, giant enclosures are usually the biggest one. <laughs> yeah, they put it in some giant cage. <laughs> day, like, it's like, well, I got this cage. It's four foot wide and four foot tall and two foot deep. And it's like this crazy bioactive thing. I'm like, I go, I'm not going to sell you this freaking snake if you're going to put it in that. I go, it's going to crash and burn and fast. It is not going to do well. Eventually, maybe. Not when it only weighs 25 grams. Well, they brought it home from the show that day, and they tried to feed it, and it didn't eat. And then tomorrow, they smack it in the face with the mouse, and it doesn't eat. And the next day, they like, smack it in the face with the mouse. Yep. I mean, sooner or later, it's going to be like, fuck it, I, I don't want to do anything. I get the, I get calls like this, usually from people that didn't even buy the snake for me, but they just thought I would answer the question. And it's like, I don't know, I'm doing everything right. All my temperatures are perfect. There never are. But they, no, it's like, never. all my temperatures are perfect. The cage is perfect. I handle it every day. It's like, <laughs> none of that is true. It's like, <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? It's like. Leave that fucking snake alone. It's like it has a brain that's like half the size of a lentil. Like, what are you doing? It's just got like stuck in a deli cup, shipped everything it's ever known to the ability that it has to know anything is gone. It got crammed in a deli cup, shipped across the country, stuck in something way bigger, way different, with a different thermal gradient. And these giant hands from the sky keep reaching down and messing with it. And then you wonder why it stresses out and doesn't eat. Leave Mm -hmm. it alone. Don't touch that thing. I tell people that snake shouldn't even know you exist until it's eaten three times. (laughs) <laughs> leave it alone yeah. let it yeah. settle yeah feed it what i told you to feed it it's like oh, it won't eat live pinkies it won't eat rat pinkies it won't eat. it's like well because i told you don't feed it pinkies at all it's a terrible idea don't feed it pinkies like just feed it, mm-hmm. what, feed it. it's as far as getting troublesome feeders to eat like initially uh they, there's a million tricks uh my favorite one is odor neutralizing soap uh, which you can get at any sporting goods store walmart because deer hunters use it to wash their nasty people smell away so the deer don't smell them. I don't know how effective it is for that. Yeah. But it's really I think, great. I think you catch a lot more hunters than you do deer with that. Yeah, it's really good for washing that the mouth. The smell is what they find offensive, particularly mm-hmm. of mice. I mean, if you make the mouth smell like nothing, that works pretty good in a lot of cases. And then if you need to go a step beyond and then scent it with whatever else, if you first, you know, most of the time people that you take a stinky-ass mouse and rub it on a chicken, you just got a slightly chicken-scented, stinky-ass mouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you wash the mouse and make it smell like nothing, then you put the you get a much better response. Well, that's uh, – so some of our answers basically go in that direction. Uh, Victor said he washes the mouse with Dawn dish soap, and then he offers it to his alterna hatchlings, and they took it right uh, pretty much right away. And then several of them say things like uh, Vienna sausage juice. I've seen uh, tuna juice, you know. Salmon juice. Yeah. Tuna juice is a thing. Uh, I – you know, it depends on what it is and what they're going to respond to uh, is going to be a little different. But I don't know. A lot of times the biggest thing you can do is be patient and not expect things to eat. You're, you're trying to take an animal that, you know, in my case, there are a bunch of snakes that I'm struggling to get babies to feed literally right now. Like I'm like, mm-hmm. every day I'm constantly Same. messing with babies. And every day there's like, hey, five more ate this time. And then there's still a hundred more that haven't, but you're just, you just chip away at it. You have to be patient. You're, you have an animal that's looking for some Australian gecko, and you're trying to get it to eat a dead European mouse. It doesn't know what that even is. 
like and you're wondering why <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're really it's a stretch or they people that insist on like you know you if you're going to keep snakes you better be at least willing to feed them a live rodent at some from time yeah. to time it's like that is a thing mm -hmm. this idea that they just come out of the gate and always eat frozen their whole life sometimes maybe maybe not like you need to be the First thing I said, well, did you try feeding it live with? No. I was like, well, try that. It's the obvious mm -hmm. thing to try. Like, it's the easiest thing to try. Well, it's like, you can, if you, fine, if you don't want to feed it live, at least just, you know, ki kill it and do fresh kill. That way it's still warm. It still smells like it was alive. Try that. It was about six months ago I had I had one of these, somebody had sent a snake to and everything. And they're like, oh, I've, uh, all my temps and everything are doing exactly what you, what you told me. It's like, I'm like, what are your temps? Like, Oh, it's like 72 on the cold side. And like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't tell you 70. It's like, that is not what I said. I said 80 to 82. And I'm not, when I say 80 to 82, I mean 80 to 82. I do not mean 75. I do not mean 77. I mean 80 to 82. It matters. It's like, people think that snakes are smarter than they are. They think that snakes will make decisions that are in their own best interest. And they will not. There's a reason we don't use heat rocks. They will sit on a heat rock and die. Snakes don't have, especially tropical ones, don't have situational awareness of temperatures very well. Because a carpet python, for example, doesn't really, most of the populations don't have to worry about the concept of too cold. So they don't understand the idea of too cold because they are where they're supposed to be. Ergo, it can't get too cold because they're in the right place. Um, in the more subtropical ones, anyway. And it's, they all understand too hot because even in all the range, it'll get too hot and they know to see refuge from over from high temps but the concept of that low end cutoff of low temps kind of eludes them what i'm saying is if you give it you can have a giant cage and everything is perfect and the temperatures throughout the entire cage are absolutely spot on perfect 80 to 90 at the extremes everything's perfect and then at the bottom of the cage you put a big ass block of ice and put your hide box on top of the box of ice a bed of ice <laughs> frozen snake every time every freaking time they'll sit it's like this they're just not because they don't quite get that. They will choose security over temperature every single time to their own detriment. See, what's funny is my most recent trouble feeders, uh, they're not so much trouble feeders as long as you understand the, how, their biology. So I got rubber boas last year, and they're babies. And they obviously, they a couple of them kind of wanted to eat, and they quit eating. So you have to freeze them right away. You basically have to, you know, they're that species that wants to go through rumation before they ever take a meal. So I put them in on ice at you know, 35 to 40 degrees, and they still cruised around like nothing was going on. Yeah. <laughs> but as soon as they came out of brumation, man, they all started eating like crazy, and now they don't skip a meal. But I know at some point later this year, they're going to stop. They're, uh, yeah. That's their, I, just, I mean, they're, I live in rubber bow country. I can yeah. find rubber bows within 20 minutes of my house. Um, it, it's their, it's, yeah, we average 42 inches of snow a year here. <laughs> and they're just, they are, remarkably resilient, have an incredibly low metabolic rate. They can go a long time without eating because of that low metabolic rate. There's actually one researcher that thinks they might be one of the longest lived vertebrates in the world huh. and thinks they might live to be over a hundred years old. Well, that's crazy. Based on that incredibly low wow. metabolic rate. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you can cut them in half and count the rings like a tree. <laughs> but see, I think that's a situation where you've got to understand the, the, the natural biology of your animal. You've got to understand it's ecology, how it lives sometimes. It's in group because they're not really a real boa. They're a New World Arisonae, which is people don't yeah. realize. We call any – there's several – there's like five different groups of basal snakes that are kind of equally primitive. Uh, and boas and pythons are two, and the other ones are not. But they're, they're, you know, there's the New and Old World Arisonae. There's Boileridae. There's you – know, there's and uh, what's the other one? The little uh, 
Caribbean little dwarf boas and everything, but we tend to call all the other ones boas. So those like, you know, bromeliad boas, that's a dumb family of snakes. It's not a boa. It's like it's, you know, taxonomically at the same rank as a boa, that same. Well, it's, it's like a Calabar's burrowing python's not a python. No, it's a New World Ericene. Uh, or just, what is it, the Mexican burrowing python, which isn't one either? Yeah, no, that's like the one of the closest relatives to pythons, but it isn't a python. It's, uh, yeah, the stories of these things are, it's pretty interesting. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. With like the aerosines, you see some of them, you know, your sand boas and stuff. Some give, most give live birth. There's yeah. a couple that lay eggs. There's one that's like transitioning from one to the other where it lays an egg that hatches in like five days. What's well, the Saharans? Like the Saharans. It's a gooey egg that like pops in like a few days. Like what? I want to say they're actually going, they've gone back and forth through evolution. More than once. Yeah. More than once. Because like, it turns out that transition, but for them anyway, from live birth to egg laying is not as big of a thing as you think it would be. Yeah. Uh, it's And that that's gone back and forth. You see populations, there's some lizard populations that are known where there'll be like a lowland population and a kind of a montane mountain population. And the ones in the mountains will give live birth and the ones in the lowlands will lay eggs. Same species in different yeah, elevations because... There's you know, a skink in Australia that's going through that right now. Yeah. Turns it, out not as big of a thing as you'd think. So when it comes to uh, feeding tricky feeders... What do you do when hatching? So if I know, you know, we talked about people getting one for somebody, it probably should eat for them. There's probably some issues. But if you've got a, a clutch that hatches, what do you do with your trouble feeders? Uh, I will exhaust. I will do like ridiculous. Like I did, I, ironically, and I'll admit it, I had a snake die today. A baby. A baby. Beautiful zebra jungle from 2020 it finally gave up the ghost today this thing had never eaten in its own its entire life it's a full year of me trying every wow. trick in the book cramming stuff down his throat to keep it alive and just eventually there are you have to accept that you will lose babies that just never figure it out that their instinct that they're just so convinced that lizard is coming and they'll just hold out till they literally till they die i had two sambos this year that went probably nine or eight, nine or ten months and i finally said screw it and gave them to a king snake i was like Oh, I, yeah, I mean, the idea, like, I don't throw any snakes away. I mean, well, that one was kind of gross, but, like, I have I have a selection of frozen carpet pythons for sure. Mostly because I produce so many of them that you always end up with, like, dead in the shell, full term. Oh, your egg tooth broke off and you drowned. You didn't hatch. Perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. And if you catch it fast enough, I just, that's why I start my black-headed pythons on. Carpet pythons. <laughs> oh, do you really? Yeah, I take a stillborn oh. carpet. This is probably more information than you need, but. And Corey's like, no, no I I'm like, tell snakes. me, this is great. <laughs> Half a carpet python is about perfect. I take oh, a, cool. a hatchling car, stillborn carpet and I'll just yeah. thaw it out, cut it in half, and then assist feed them a half a carpet. Because feed them like rat tails, assist feeding rat tails. Because one thing you can be sure of if you've hatched blackheads is that they're not going to eat a rodent right away. <laughs> like you're, yeah. You pretty much know you're going to have several months of like, assist feeding. They're usually pretty easy if it's something long and skinny and you put it in like an inch, they like, struggle for like a few seconds like eh, screw it and they swallow you don't have to like cram it all the way down right you just got to get them started and you just accept that that's the case and i just i mean a car half a carpet python is way more nutritious than a rat tail which is so much yeah, of no skin kidding. and hair and cartilage no kidding uh and it's you know probably something would even be on the menu in some places yeah so, oh, that's, that's cool that's good waste to know. not want not i would hate to yep. think that this thing died in the egg and its life never meant anything at least this is some some good came of it you know what i mean 
yep. something productive came of its existence, however fleeting. Now Corey's going to save every dead baby snake for her blackheads. I I, I have king snakes that I already <laughs> feed my my stillborns to. Yeah, yeah. No, I, See that? I, you got to have a guard. I mean, yeah. Why waste it? It's like that's good. Mm-hmm. Like I told you, Corey, the whole breeding of snake eaters scares the shit out of me. Like I couldn't imagine yeah. breeding blackheads or king snake. Like that stuff scares me. Like to raise this thing and then go, all right, here you guys, y'all are boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh shit, no, your dinner. And you always meet someone who's like, yeah, she ate her boyfriend last year, so I had to buy another one. I mean, MDKs are a prime example of that. I know so many people who've lost one or the other in breeding. I've seen it in a bunch of different pythons, even ones you don't, you know, I've seen jungle carpets eat each other. I've seen oh, wow. lots of anteresia cannibalism, mostly when they're babies. Uh, they'll, you know. Eat each other. I mean, What's happening in ball pythons? I think people go, well, I put these two ball pythons together and then mm-hmm. they have one ball python. And when it's babies, it always works out the same where the one that gets eaten dies and the one that does the eating also regurgitates right. it and dies. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's right. like, it never goes well for any of them. I had a clutch of granite, normal spotted pythons one year and like I go in there and there's like one all crumpled up dead in the corner and they just, they just hatch. They're all in the tub together. I'm like, what the heck happened? And it's like, ah, that's weird. I go in there the next day, there's another one dead. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I go in there the next day, there's another one that's the one that had been doing it had eaten a third one of its siblings. Jesus and Christ. like it was all engorged and then it puked it up and died. So I ended up losing like four. Wow. Lessons were learned. <laughs> Lessons were learned and we haven't had that happen again. It's like, oh, maybe you should not keep those together together before they shed because they're sometimes they'll do that. <laughs> you say that as I have 10 baby Brazilian rainbow boas all living in the same tub right now until they shed. No, that's one of those we all do. That there's these, there's some of these tropes that people want to put out there like they do. Well, I do it this way. It's like, no, you don't. It's like we all stick. If we produce any number of reptiles, sticking the whole clutch in a big tub until they shed or whatever, at least temporarily, is what we all do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anybody produces that tells me that they're setting up each baby in like some awesome cage and everything right away and like I'm calling bullshit right now. Like, or that person has five snakes. Well, I mean, I mean it's far more natural. I think a lot of these things, when they're born or hatched, do stick together in whatever area where they were laid. Have you noticed this? When you, I mean, the tubs I put, like, clutches of carpets in are pretty good size. Yeah. But are they, and in there I will put, like, you know, six or seven different hides in a couple water bowls in a generous amount of space. And you will find that they are always together. Yeah, always in that big giant clump of They're, snakes. They, will always, they could be in hides of you know eighteen inches away. They could be all over the place and diffused and solitary. Mm-hmm. Nope, they're one giant pile. I yep. opened the tub the other day and I thought somehow they all got out. They were all underneath the water bowl. He was opening yeah. the chunk to all me. together. It's like yeah, there's initially. I mean, I don't think they do that if they were all older, but as baby, right out of the shoot, yeah. they do do that. So they're not averse to the to the idea as long as the species that. Uh, that reminds me, I gotta, I gotta go in here in a minute because I gotta. It's my trivia night. Every Wednesday, I go do trivia with my girlfriend and her family. And the one thing I want to mention, real you quick, have to put all those do. like nerdy facts to use and stuff. So yeah, before okay. you do go, is the one thing that I think you do better than anyone else is record keeping. Because uh, I got a Brettles from you mm, a year and a half, two years ago now, and with it, I got a little picture of its parents and its parents' parents and its parents' parents, and I. You could trace it all back to where they came from. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't do that because I'm lazy as hell. But if anybody ever is interested in keeping records, I think you're the person they need to go to and how to set that up. 
it's kind of sad that I need to do that, though, in a way, in that it's so screwed up and the, the carpet gene pool is so hybridized and messed up and everything's a question mark because of people not keeping track. I kept track. I'm able to do that because I've just been breeding them for since 1994. I just was around in the old days. I am the old timer. And I just kept track for all these years. And I've just kept that going. I found the lineage chart thing to be the easiest way for me to do that. And it's a visual sort of thing. And I can keep them all on my website archive so anybody can look at those. Uh, and, but yeah, it's, uh, I just, I think I, w I wish it wasn't necessary to do that. But at this point, if you have a carpet python, you say, well, this is a pure jungle. And you'd be like, how do you know it's a pure jungle? Nobody can answer. I can. But most people wouldn't be able to answer that question. It's like, how do you know it's a pure jungle? It's like, you got there's a burden of proof sort of thing now uh, that is uh, sadly necessary. Could you imagine and, someone trying to do that with a ball python? You know, they're trying no. to screw that up. Like, I was <laughs> my 25% Angolan. You know, it's like, what are you doing? It's like a ball python and Angolan are not even related. It's like they're convergently evolved on a smaller body size and then. Angolan pythons are just pick me African rock pythons. They're not related to ball pythons. <laughs> they literally are. They're literally, I have rock pythons and Angolan pythons. You're like, it's obvious to look at them. I do want an Angolan. What? I want an Angolan. That, that, those, they just, they look cool. They're bumpy, which is also a really cool thing. Yeah. But, like, but they're, they're far more active. You know, they're one of those that get lumped in. like, look similar to ball pythons. Everybody's like, oh, it's a lot like a ball python. And until you see one, you realize, they're nothing like a fucking ball python. Their heads kind of shaped the same. That's about it. They're flattened, kind of. They have flatter heads. Their body and cross-section is less round and more kind of oval and flattened. A bit like a gaboon viper. Not in the extreme, but a little more vertically compressed. Uh, they're way bigger. Like, I've seen oh, yeah. six-foot Angolan pythons. I remember it's a million years ago. I think it was 2001. I went over to Casey Lazic's house and picked up my original striped reddles so 20 years ago. You let me go over and I picked, hand-picked them. Back in the good old days. And he had an Angolan python female. It was maternally incubating like 25 eggs. It was, the, it was huge. This huge tub. It was just seeing this massive number of eggs. I'm like, yeah, these are not small. They don't have to be. They're not. They're small by, you know, python standards, I guess. But not not like a ball python. It was pretty substantial. But that's a, that's one thing I've thrown to the side because of ball python morphs. Mm -hmm. And now what are people doing with them? Breeding them to ball python morphs, which is just that, like. That's, that's horrible. There aren't even any Angolans on Morph Market. <sighs> and it's uh. a and it's a it's a species we can we're never gonna get you ever notice there's no new bloodline showing up of those? Like no. <laughs> and aren't going to. Um uh, that's a shame. That's one that's I think is a great sink that should be more there should be more than in the hobby. And it's yeah, just not. I got finally bred them this year. Well, I bred them once before and I killed the eggs being an idiot. But uh but that was my fault. So. Well you you also produce what I think is the best beginner snake for anybody that nobody actually really gets pythons? I think brettles are the best python on earth yeah they're awesome they're like a respectable size but not too big big but not too big Colorful. super mellow impossible to kill yeah <laughs> you can't be like oh I got it too cold I'm like no you didn't it's, it's still hanging out it's good yeah I don't I don't they don't I think I've only a number of brettles pythons I've ever had die I think one I think I've had one Brettles python, and I've been keeping them since 1999. Um, wow. So one's died. And it was, wow. actually, it was the striped female I got from Casey in 2001, and she died when she was 19 years old. Um, all the rest of them are, you know, they're adults that I have, you know, 
found new homes for or retired and they've gone to live with other with other people. And maybe I don't they understand should, why that why they like some more though. Yeah, what? like I don't. They just yeah, they're. I do my best. I make a lot of them. I ten. I, you do make a lot of them. I only made four clutches this year, partly okay. because I wanted less of them this year, and partly because I had a terrible season. So, <laughs> just, yeah, I was like, I was only going to try for six clutches, and then only four of them went, and then a couple of them were pretty low yield, sort of. Uh, so, I'll, you know, I'll probably have a hundred, but, <laughs> but not uh, not the normal numbers for sure. But eh, now they're my favorite species of yes. python. Period. I think everybody, if anybody wants. You know, a decent sized snake that's still handleable and that is super easy to take care of. They've got to get a brettles. They get pretty when they get older. They stay pretty when they're older. They don't, you know, they don't. They're usually pretty mellow. Yeah, they're like, I would say they're as mellow as ball pythons. They're on that same sort of level. Well, and they just have that pretty natural red color. Like worst, you don't, you don't get that outside of a lot of morphs. <laughs> worst bite I've ever had was a big ball python. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, you're working like your 82 yep. degree snake building and my work clothes is basically my gym shorts flip-flops and no shirt because it's 82 degrees and there's no windows and who cares and feeding rats and the thing just flies out of the tub and just bites me right on the pack just right in the middle of my chest and just Oof. was going to eat me and it just kept twisting and just giving you oh. the it was like black and blue and teeth broken off it was like i was just oh about to take a knee yeah that was a ball python. I've never been bitten by an adult brettles python. That's crazy. Never been bit by an adult. I've had the occasional lunge at me when I'm feeding, but that's that doesn't. Yeah. That's just a good feed response. I'd one land a bite. My forearm. I got a jungle carpet that got me the other day. I've got the worst bite in recent years. This big ass black bruise, and you can Ugh. see every tooth mark. And it, I have really sort of vascular veiny forearms, and it totally caught that main vein that goes down your forearm, and like just. Ugh. That was, was a bleeder, that was, but that was not good. <laughs> yeah, still looks gross. But well, that's why we're dealing with these baby rainbow boas. I, I wear leather gloves, and people can call me pussy all they want. But Robert's seen it. You put a hand in there, and you're getting ten bites all at one time. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not gonna deal with that. I don't feel like <laughs> I just don't feel like taking all those teeth at one time. Yeah, I've got like a tub with twenty baby Darwins in it right now. That's like, that's like, huh, it's like all this bunch of. <laughs> And they're little, but it's like, you guys are a bunch of jerks. They're born it shows assholes. people love to ask if they can hold the baby jungles. And I'm like, no, no, you can't. <laughs> you look at them. It's like, why do you hate me? I do everything for you. I, I feed you. I clean you. I provide you with a home. I was, was partly responsible for your very existence. And for all my efforts, you just hate me. They're just like, ugh. Some of them. I'm, yeah. I don't know about when I sell these rainbows at uh, at shows i think i'm hoping they're all online sales so i never have to like hand one over to somebody <laughs> that way they can just deal with the biting them when it comes in the mail yeah i mean I, I don't know like i get i mean you get it too i'm sure it's like oh is it tame it's like <laughs> in, in a like, year yeah. i'm like it's like a scrub python what are you talking about <laughs> something else you're like are you familiar with scrubs <laughs> like I, yeah it's like a it's like if you're asking me that question, I don't want to sell it to you because it's is not, not going to. The animal for you. There are those red flag questions. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not ready. Yeah. Be like, define tame. It's like, <laughs> no, it's like it's horrible. Will it calm down? No. It, no, it, no, it won't. <laughs> and it hates you, and it's always going to hate you, and it's always going to be plotting your demise forever. And there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> I have a children's <laughs> python like that. My you children's python fucking that? hates me. You need to accept that and <clears throat> deal with that. Fine, but if not, like it's like it's like you're not going to change its ways. Like it, 
weirdly, like the super aggressive ones are easy to deal with because you don't give them any slack. You know yeah. what you're going to do. You're on guard around them. You know that. Yeah. Patternless southern scrubs I got that my friend Brandon Wheeler produced. And like, I don't trust those things at all. They've never bitten me. But I know not to trust them because they're going to bite me. They're going to try. They're thinking about it. That must be Katie, the Hama people. And that's why you open it. You open that with the hook. And you your your. I know what the deal is. And some of these things, like all those white lips I hate so much, like I have to do the cleaning feed. You ever do that with the really aggressive snakes? Like you clean them and feed them at the same time. Yeah, you give them them feed so that they're distracted. Yep. Yep. Killing that rat a yep. lot. Like, and if it's a frozen rat, sometimes you gotta like reach over with the tongs or hemostats and kind of jiggle <laughs> it's the still alive. <laughs> they kill it again while you're still, if you gotta really get in there and clean it, like, and yep. just, oh, yeah, it's the clean and feed. Yep, it's the only absolutely. way to go with scrub pythons <laughs> and white lips. The rest of them, you know, maybe. But yeah, that's, yeah. if it wasn't for that, some of those things might never get fed. That's Nick, thank you so much for coming yes, on today. Thank you, Nick. It's been great. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I've been I've wanted to have you on here for a while, and finally I was like, "Ooh, Corey's gonna be on here." Corey no will enjoy. Don't ask me to do these shows anymore. Like I'm always around too. <laughs> like man, like I haven't been on a podcast since November of 2019. Like oh, we'll fix that. I'll have you on again. Yeah, I'm always around. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm old. I don't have a life anymore. I'm past that point. So <laughs> just pretty much. Well, go, I'm, go at that, play I'm at that age where, like, you make up a reason to go to Walmart at, like, 9 o'clock on a Saturday just so you can get out of your freaking house. <laughs> that's the outing. Like, mm-hmm. go to, you know, it's like you're just looking for some shit to buy just because you just can't stand being in your house. That's that's how far it's devolved. Like, it's too old for anything else. Well, you can go play trivia tonight. Yeah. like I, Although it doesn't sound like a young game either. I have those brains that's like completely full of just useless scientific little factoids, and it totally comes in handy. Yeah, I bet you're great ago, to have on the team. A couple of weeks ago, it was like, you know, it was like a multiple choice. Like, what's the speed of light? And it was like, and I just put on 186,000 miles per second. Like, I didn't even have to <laughs> look at the, didn't have to look at the options. I knew it was 186,000 miles per second. Like, it's like, there's one last week. It was about uh, the loudest sound ever ever heard you know in historic times and everything and i was like it's krakatoa it's like then the options came up but i already was like I'm like are you sure it's like are you do you met me before like of course i'm sure like i know that i'm i'm more certain of that than i am of anything like, it's like, i have those moments and then people look at me weird and i'm like i just know weird shit leave me alone i can't remember what side the gas door is on my car after all these years <laughs> uh, I don't know how many times i put gas in it i can't remember which on the right or the left i can never remember where i parked my car i can't remember my kids birthdays yes but your car should be easy to see i've seen you building the one well, i have a couple cars that's the those are the ones i just work on all the time i suck all my money away mostly but i just, I just like the bright green it draws me in every time i see a picture <laughs> i get to drive that one the other one i just work on the one all the making all the parts all for the fiberglass. it fiberglass the one I'm at, oh, I just work on, it seems like. <laughs> but if you ever want a money, if you ever want a hole in the ground, you just stand back and throw money into. I highly recommend it. <laughs> you mean other than snakes? Oh, right. Snakes do a pretty good job. <laughs> when your hobby becomes your business, you need another hobby. You need an interest outside of reptiles. You lose your freaking mind. That makes sense. Yeah, I do fishing well, also, and that spends a lot of money, too. You need, a, you need an escape from that you need something to do that's nothing to do with that whole world and everything you just got to be into for yourself uh so that became that it's not bad yeah literally right now (laughs) 
I can hit keys. Literally in a car. We're going to be there in 10. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like right, one big outing. This is like, what? You live in the extreme time zone where it's still early. Oh, no, we lost. I think, oh, we're, losing. We losing? I think we're losing Nick. All right. And I think he's gone. All right. So, Nick, we can let you go at this point. <laughs> you there? We are. We are. Hello? We lost you. We made Yeah, because, like, you ever, like, you got to love technology where, you know, you're, uh, your hands free in your car just automatically switches and never, it only does it right when it wants to. Uh, or there's the when you pull away from your house and the Wi Fi switches over to cell and it just like screws up everything. Mm-hmm. Your phone can't understand why you're no longer on Wi Fi. Yep. Well, I, I could go on an endless old man rant about technology now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I just bought this like the brand new iPhone 12, costs $1,100. You know what it does? Every awesome everything except make a damn phone call. <laughs> it's like. It's a goddamn handheld supercomputer. I can instantly recall any bit of information that's ever been known by any member of the human species throughout all of recorded history. But I can't call a business in my own town without it dropping the call or just, it's like, that's the least, it's like, quit trying to make the battery lighter and last longer. And make it. <laughs> quit adding extra cameras. And how about for the iPhone, <laughs> just make it make a damn call without dropping it. How about it just works right all the time? I'd pay money for that. They've made phones less and less phone-like. That's why I tell my customers it's best to email, text, or send me a Facebook message because talking on the phone is like the biggest struggle these days. I'm old, so I still maintain that sort of archaic, antiquated uh, ability to have a conversation with an actual human being, person-to-person, which is definitely a dying art for sure. Uh, no, it's the, it's the best to call up Nick, but you've got to, like, set aside at least 45 minutes of your <laughs> – yeah. you know it. <laughs> charge, char, char, charge your battery up, right? I know. Like I, I know I'm bad and I ramble because I have, like – No, it's like, my like, call. Like, like, I know you're dodging off. my call. I swear I'll keep it brief. Like, <laughs> I, I you know it's bad when you hear the laughing in the background to agree with you. Yeah, my girlfriend's driving since I'm – still on the call and everything she just, as soon as she heard the you, you guys set aside 45 minutes apparently that was humorous <laughs> <laughs> oh well go enjoy your time yeah go go have fun it was a blast talking to you nick well maybe you ever uh, have a guest cancel or you need somebody on short notice i don't have much of a life these days so we will definitely have you back they, they will take yeah. you up on it i'm always up for anything all right it's good talking to you guys good talking to you man bye nick bye. Bye. <laughs> All right, that yeah. was awesome, y'all. That was great. It was very scientific. So I, yes. I know Robert was just answering emails over there. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> do a little shit. But uh, so Robert, do you want to go ahead and do your your people of the internet? Because we didn't get to do it last week because we had the. Uh, almost dead. Let me see if I can get them up here. We yeah, the, we talked about last week. The type to do that with no but last week was really good i enjoyed it was that. a great show two weeks in a row great you've had, Who do yeah, we have you on three have weeks been rocking it recently. Wanna, oh it was just us yeah it was just us the week before that because it was supposed to be jason Miloradovich, who is yeah. tentatively our guest for next week i just didn't just, uh mess myself up by saying it out loud 
So apparently last weekend was the weekend of let's just pick up Cottonmouths. Yeah, I saw a lot of pictures of that. Yeah, like three different posts, one in the Tennessee group and two in our Texas group. Just holding them by the head. People just, no, like one of them was like, hey, this snake was really docile and my kid was playing with it. I saw that. What kind was it? Uh, that's a cotton mouth. And they were like, oh, well, God, it didn't bite them. It was really sweet, though. Oh, my God. <sighs> yeah. And then uh, another one was, um, uh, oh, here's one where someone um, in Middle Eastern, t- Eastern Middle Tennessee said, my dog just brought me this snake. I don't know if it was bitten or not. Is this a copperhead? And it is. And someone says, I think that's a trans-pecus rat snake. The eyes are too buggy as a copperhead. <laughs> Um, it's a fucking Tennessee, <laughs> the Tennessee trans Pecos rat snake. Right. It's a small population. Um, wow. this one, uh, someone said <sighs> Pennsylvania was holding a girl got bit. Oh, it's so yeah. bad. Um, this one was a young lady who was uh, tubing, um, in a river in Tennessee <laughs> and was wondering what kind of snake it was. She saw, thought it was a stick that was next to her in the water until it opened its eyes. So she was really confused as to what kind of snake it was. I love Corey's face. And there was all these people telling her it was probably a cottonmouth. It was probably this, it was probably that. And I said, Hey, if it opened its eyes, it was a turtle. (laughs) (laughs) And then people got mad at me. They were like, you have to be rude about it. I said, Oh my God. What was rude about that? I said, if it opened its eyes, it was a turtle. I mean, it wasn't a fucking snake. I, I didn't say, hey, you fucking moron. <laughs> right. Wow. Um, In my neighborhood group, it's always, oh, my God, is this a cottonmouth? Which we don't even fucking have. And then, like, or is it, um, or, like, is it a rattlesnake? And it's always, the answer is always it's a rat snake or it's a water snake. Literally the only, t- I mean, we have rattlesnakes yep. here, too. But, like, it's without fail, it's a rat snake or a water snake. Uh, this one, a person was wondering if anyone else has a jealous ball python because when she gets her corn snake out, the ball python surfs the glass and looks angry because it's jealous. So she has to get it out too. Yeah, jealousy is a really common emotion in reptiles. Oh yeah, they have it all the time. Um, that's so many. Just like the one that the snake that was very nervous because Uh, of the fireworks. So apparently, I accidentally screenshot of Zach Bauer's black eye. I don't remember doing that. Um. Oh, here I, we go. I do remember you doing that. Uh, the one where Zach said he punched himself in the face three times? Yes. Yeah, I'm not believing that, Zach. Uh, this guy who says that he can tell male and female ball pythons apart because the males have a more bulkish head. Oh. Um, yeah. I'm like, cool, cool man. Found Except- a new way. Yeah, Appreciate you, you, bro. It's the only one I can do. That's amazing. Um. <laughs> this person admitted to ask what's a good betting for a BP and they put DP and, and <laughs> that everybody went in. That got out of hand quickly. Trash out curtain spread out of the floor. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they, it, they never caught it. It had 68 comments before the admin shut it down. Oh my um, God. Oh, here's the one. Does anyone else else have derps that are scared of fireworks? Derps. I live in the U.S. and keeping mine calm last night involved setting up Netflix on my smartphone to distract one gecko while carrying the other round in my shirt because he finds it soothing. Yep. <laughs> Corey's brain is melting right now. That's a I don't, I don't even have words. Katie posted that she relocated a box turtle today at the camp she was at. Go Katie. Oh, yeah? She did more herping today than I did. This guy posted... Um, 
looking for rescue ball pythons. No one's which is automatically I fucking a, hate that word right. rescue. And then he, people are like, "Well, what is your husbandry like? What do you you know?" Before anybody can consider that, and it was, um, I have a forty gallon tank with day and nighttime lights and a heat rock. <laughs> so someone's gonna have to rescue the snake that fucking from him snake that, from that doesn't eat. Correct. I guess someone's gonna have to rescue a rescue. Um, and you know, people offered him advice, and he was actually really receptive to it, but. Um, it's just the whole thing is don't, don't be out here trying to get free animals and call it a rescue and call it a rescue. And you don't even know how to take care of them in the first place. You know, at least they were not like a lot of them who, you know, get all pissy whenever you try to tell them, Hey, you know, that's not a proper husbandry. You don't give them the answer they want. Right. Well, I saw on YouTube, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, oh, okay. So speaking of YouTube, I did watch a YouTube video that I want to talk about. It was Wiccan's Wicked Reptiles. Top five beginner reptiles you have never heard of. Because a lot of times you'll hear, when we've talked about beginner reptiles in here before, uh, not being beginners. You know, bearded dragons, not a great beginner reptile. Uh-uh. Iguanas, 100% not a great beginner reptile. So some of these were pretty good. We actually mentioned a couple of them. Uh, the first one here was rubber boas. Um, now, he's excluding price on this list. because these Yeah, things, sure. They, they're not beginner price, but rubber boas, as long as you can get them past that first year where they want to brewmate and then eat, I have found them to be a pretty easy snake. Plus, they don't take a lot of heat, and they're pretty cool, and not a lot of people have them. So I would kind of agree with that. We talked earlier with Nick about Angolan pythons. That's on this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would agree with them. Again, not going to be the cheapest because, I, I mean, you can't right? find them. They're not. There's like – I just looked on Wolf Market. There are none. Yeah. I have a friend who just hatched them out, but yeah. Yeah, I want one so bad. They're, just, they're cool looking. Uh, you also put on Chihuahua geckos. Oh, that's a good thought. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously not I mean, cheap. pricey, but yeah. yeah. But, you know, everybody, everybody looks at crested on one side, and they look yeah. at, um, why is my brain going, Carl? What is the big-ass? Um, Leechies. Leechies on the other side. Mm-hmm. Chihuahua's there in the middle that no one yep. really talks about a lot. That's true. So, and, and that's th- true. being one of those types of geckos that, don't take a lot of heat. I um, always recommend geckos to people who want beardies. Yes, a leopard gecko is going to be so much easier. Yep. Uh, this was one, and I, I have no experience and I have no idea, but he said a mandarin rat snake. I know they're very pretty. Oh, I would not call that one a beginner one. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I normally don't see any rat snake from Asia ever. Interesting. Those yeah, are I mean, hard to come by, but they're beautiful. Oh, well, they're pretty. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're lucky that our blue beauty is calm, mostly calm. As long as you're not food. As long as you're not food. You get yeah. it out of the cage. Right. Once you get out of the cage. Yeah. But, um, in fact, I haven't even been there when gotten him out of the cage. You have. Yeah. But I haven't. He's fine once you get him out. Yeah. But, you know, that's a big-ass intimidating snake. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever, especially when it's coming at you with his mouth open. But, apparently, people we got him from said he's all bluff. Just reach in and get him. He probably won't bite you. Okay. Yeah, that's what I have to do with my my blackheads. I just like reach in and grab. If you have any hesitation, it's like they feed off that hesitation. The last one he had was Chinese cave geckos, and I have no experience with Chinese I, cave geckos. I don't know anything about them. But I mean, I imagine they're probably fairly easy. A lot of the geckos are pretty pretty easy to take care of. Uh, the one I would add on there that we talked about earlier is definitely Brettles pythons. Yep. If anybody's ever thought about getting a carpet python, uh, think Brettles python too. Like that that should be in absolutely. Your and the and. Prices on just a regular Brettles python are not, not crazy. No. 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 And uh, literally what you should do, if you're thinking about getting anything in that whole group of carpets or Brettles, just go check out InlandReptile.com and look mm-hmm. at what Nick's got 
and he's got pictures of stuff that he has available that he's sold. Um, that's how I found my brittle. I was we were at the New Orleans show last year. I think it was last no two years. It had to be two years. I don't know whatever it was. Uh, and I was just scrolling through his thing, and then I saw he had this amazing looking brittles. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting it, and I love that thing. Was, I can't wait till it's like seven foot long and red, and I'm gonna make a big ass cage for it. I'm breeding them for the first time next year, and I'm kind of terrified about wintering them. But <laughs> that's the only thing is I don't plan we'll on breeding it. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how to do it in Texas. We'll we'll figure it out. You're gonna need like a like a, like one like a big cooler, like a big yeah. like I don't uh, this cooler scares me. I'm thinking of putting them in my laundry room because I have a window in my laundry room, but I can close the door so it's not going to freeze the entire rest of the house. The only problem but is like summer's down. The winter's down here is like, yes. It it's not be, consistent. No, it'll be 35 yeah. and then 70 the next right, day. Right. That's mm-hmm. the problem. That's the problem. So that was the thing with the rubber bows. I had to yeah. buy a little wine cooler for them because yeah. I had to get them cold. Yeah. I'll be doing that for my hog noses this year. But they should. How long do you, do you I mean, you shouldn't have to uh, brewmate them for too long, right? Hog noses. No. No. They're pretty easy. Yeah. Wow. Brettles can go anywhere from 700 to 3,000. Well, yeah, you get the hypo, like hypo brettles are really hypo nice. genetic strength. Yeah. I'm getting, I, Nick, Nick has one that he's saving for me this year that's going to be a hypo stone washed one. I'm a big fan it's of gonna the stone It's going to be my washed. male. Oh, I like stone washed. But the, the, the hypo does. Because, I mean, I like the red. I like it with hypo. Can... Yeah. I think I, I, I really like them. So I'm going to get a hypo stone washed for him. But to me, they're still, it's a lot yeah. like the uh, Brazilian rainbows. In their just regular normal color, they're an amazing snake, also. Absolutely. Uh, but so one of the things that's interesting with bread lie is is apparently um, in the wild they tend to be a lot brighter and redder and a lot more looking like the hypo ones. Really? Than they do in captivity. They for some reason seem to darken up in captivity. See, I was when I picked the one I got, I was looking through a whole because I couldn't afford any of the hypo and all that stuff. So I was yeah. looking through all of his normal clutches, and there was one as you scroll through the pictures, mm-hmm. one that was way redder than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's the one I got. And when I got it in person, awesome. it was still bright red. So we'll see what happens as it that's grows. That's so awesome. But, so that was uh, beginner reptiles you've never heard of. I think rubber bows, angolan pythons, chihuahua geckos. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't recommend mandarin rats. Any rat snake from Asia is not a beginner. Uh, reptile Fight Club. I, I've gone, I've, I kind of enjoy Reptile Fight Club just because of the I topics. I love they, it. Yeah, the topics they choose I really like. Uh, they did the pros and cons of reptile <clears throat> regulations, which I, I feel is very. I one yet. It's very hard to argue for me to argue the the pros of reptile regulations, but uh, <laughs> I mean I get some of them. Like I've always said, I'm okay with a permit system if yeah. done correctly. But yeah. everyone knows that a government will never do that correctly. So we're kind of catch twenty two there. Um, I definitely don't think everyone should be allowed to own a cobra. That that right. shouldn't be a thing. It could be a you know zebra spitter. That you just let loose. I'm tired of hearing about that already. But so we didn't, we didn't they, bring it up last week. So they shut up and took all of the snakes. From, I read on a couple of. I hope so. I saw that. Yeah. Because we talked about this kid mm, a month ago when he got bit by the green mamba. A little longer. A little now, longer. Yeah. He got bit by the green mamba, and we said he did everything right in the fact that he had his book and he had all this. But long oh, long I didn't long, realize it was the same kid. Same kid. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. but we didn't know at the time. He had already lost that cobra yeah. before the mamba bite. It overwintered oh, outside no. or somewhere, somebody's yeah. house, or they don't know. He didn't tell the authorities like he was supposed to legally um, that he had lost it. Yeah. Wow. And so someone someone else caught it. It has been caught. Uh, 
But yeah, good. If they came got his, I, I was saying the other day that he, that's, I'm a, in a lot of situations, like, yeah, three strike rules, pretty good. I think with venomous snakes, three strike rules too much. He did not need one more strike. You know, he got bit. He let one loose and didn't tell anybody. Cause I think the law there is if you, if one gets loose, you have to report it. He didn't. So wow. hopefully he didn't get any of that stuff back. Um, and then another thing I listened to, I listened to the snakes in the fat man episode with Bob Vu, which became very, very interesting after the <laughs> episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Bob Vu was having issues with a, a reptile show that none of us really like. Uh, so he, uh, I got it. I fucking I'll say it because he has no problem saying it. Yeah. Bob Vu had issues with Repticon. Uh, what, what exactly, how did you, you read it all? What exactly happened? Sounds like they, they moved him to the back corner at a couple of shows and were just complete dicks about it. You know, same thing happened with, um, one of our friends who's a big dragons vendor. Oh yeah. He, they had a vehicle issue and ended up having to miss a show and they told him, Oh, well, you don't get preference next time. Wow. He said, well, go fuck yourself. Yeah. When, when that person comes and buys 16 tables or whatever it is at a show, you should probably give them a little, I mean, I get not picking certain people over this or that. And like, I like how Sean doesn't skip people ahead on the line because their name, I get that. But like Bob Vu, that was the Atlanta show. Bob Vu lives like right there near Atlanta. Mm -hmm. That's his home show. He's done that show. And he's, he's a, Bob fucking Vu. Like, and he's like, a big name in the, yeah. Like if, if he's already on your list to be there, you probably should put him in the middle of the whole damn thing. Yeah, he draws people to the show. You should be thankful he's showing up to your show and drawing. Not only does so he produce amazing animals, but he's like the nicest person you ever meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that episode with him and Chris, like, it was great to listen to him and how he started. Um, cause I think a lot of people looked at him as a guy that was not a snake guy but had money and then jumped in and started selling and breeding a lot. But when mm-hmm. you listen to that episode, you realize, no, he's always been a reptile person. Mm-hmm. He just reached a point where he's like, all right, I'm going to do this. And he went and he did it and it's working. Yeah. So, uh, but he's done, he, he pulled every rept- repticon. He's not doing any repticons anymore. No. He's going to do the show me shows, which I hear are great. I've heard wonderful, wonderful things about them. Yeah. And he'll still do NARBCs and all that stuff. And he said, and possibly some others. So let's, we'll see. There, I, I know one set of shows he could come do if he can mm-hmm. get on, on the waiting list. Because <laughs> the waiting list has other ball python people like Corey Martin reptiles on there. I'm not in the wait list. <laughs> no, well, you're on the actual <laughs> list. But, so I watched there, there are a lot of ball python people. And that's always something you have to balance. It is what it is. I mean, look, yep. I, I bullshit on them all the time, but people come there to buy stuff from me also. It's, it's true. It is what it is. Plus, if there's 90% ball pythons, my shit sticks out because it's not a ball python. Yep. Uh, so some things that I saw on our discussion group. One thing that I saw that was really fucking cool that uh, Ryan Goslow posted. It was pictures of an indigo snake uh, from the Orion Center for Indigo Conservation. Eating out of a dead shark head. Mm-hmm. It was uh, on the beach, a dead shark. Uh, I guess someone chopped the head off and left it there. Mm-hmm. This indigo was coming and like taking chunks out and oh, eating wow. chunks out of the inside of the shark's head, which is very like, you know, that's something you expect from like a monitor lizard, but not from a snake. That's really interesting. But indigos are a weird snake. They're, they got a really quick metabolism to eat a ton. They're very active. So. Yeah, but if you look at the pictures on there, you can see it's it's head deep inside the back end of this shark's head, taking chunks out of it. Wow, I mean, Which food's I, food. Yeah, that was really weird. Uh, let's see, Joe Chandler was a scientist, found tiny beetle and 230 million-year-old lizard droppings. 
that's that's one thing. Oh, here's one that bothered me. So Dallas posted this, and and Dallas posted it with the intention of it being something not great. It's this woman on some sort of bayou or whatever, her uh, house backs up to a bayou, and she is feeding an alligator. Like the alligator's walking up from the water, and she's waving the food, and it's coming all the way up to her, and she feeds it from her back porch. <laughs> and uh, that's all great and good, except for when Wildlife Fisheries comes and puts that alligator down. Yep. She's now signed that alligator's death certificate. I mean, it's gonna, it's, they're going to mm-hmm. have to kill it. Um, and then people are going to get upset and well, look at how nice it is. That's great. It's nice at four foot. Come back to me when it's 10 foot and it has no fear of humans and it only sees people as a source of food. Right. So that I'm just, people have got to be smarter. That, that drives me nuts. I can't stand watching animals have to die because people were stupid. So oh, that is a shark head. I just blazed over the picture and thought it was an egg. Yeah, no, it's eating no. out, it's tearing chunks out of the back of a shark head. Yeah. Weird. Fucking weird. Uh, we're down to, oh man, Nick left and we lost like eight people. Lost all his carpet python people. James and I yep. got to do some herping this weekend. We did. James what found you guys, his, what you guys not find? only his first snakes road cruising, but also his first cottonmouths. Yeah. Wow. Uh, road cruising. I've seen cottonmouths before, non route, but yeah. Uh, I never go road cruising because I'm not going to go by myself because that's just, it, it's a safety thing. Anybody out yeah, there, sure. I def- definitely don't go road cruising by yourself. But, uh, yeah, we went road cruising the other day, and very early we found a little. It was probably a year old cottonmouth. It didn't. It no longer had a yellow tail. Still small. Um, and I sat there for the pictures, and I, when we were done with the pictures, it was like, all right. And it turned around and took off towards the grass. Like I literally said, okay, let's shoot it off the road, and it said, see ya. Yeah. Wow. Gone. Didn't chase That's us. Incredible. Did not. Did not chase us. Yeah. Uh, and then farther down, we come up, and the lights finally hit down the road, and you just see this thing stretching, this three and a half foot snake stretching across the road with its head up. And it's another cottonmouth sitting there in the middle of the road. And I spent, and this is going to sound real bad, I spent 10 minutes having to pull this thing back towards me onto the road to get it to sit still for a picture. Yeah. This thing wouldn't have chased me if I was, if that, yeah. I mean, it didn't care. It yeah. wanted to get away. Yep. Uh, we finally got our picture and then it was gone. So then we went the next night and it was a bust on July 4th. That, was, July 4th. that was stupid of us to even be out. Honestly. Yeah. Of the fireworks, they, they were. There was right. just too many cars out too, but and too many fireworks. <laughs> but I got, a, I got a, I got a tip yesterday on a really good spot, twenty minutes from here. So James and I are going to go hit it Friday night. I've saved oh, several awesome. turtles lately. I yeah, have, I have removed several turtles Me from the too. street. Oh, one thing we got to do yesterday uh, was kill apple snail eggs. Mm-hmm. We were driving where you would actually release a turtle we had saved a few weeks back, and on the concrete uh, culvers there. You can see these giant sacks of pink apple snail eggs, which are invasive. If anybody doesn't know, if you see these, they, they are pink and they're probably about two to three inches long and they'll be out of the water. If you ever see them, knock them into the water. That will kill the eggs. Apple snails are extremely invasive wow. and they need to be killed at any time you see them at all times. Kill them right away. Uh, so that was really cool. I'd never gotten to see those in person. I've always seen pictures of them, but uh, it's not cool that we saw them because there were a, Ton of, ton them. of them. I mean, just oh, as really? one of those bought a ton of them. We tried to knock as many of them in the, into the water as we could. I've uh, seen them. They're like they're, they're, them up. they're bright pink. It's a cluster of. Oh, eggs. I see. Yeah, yeah. About two, three inches long. Oh wow! About an inch across. Uh, like I said, they'll always be out of the water, either on a stalk of a plant, or in this case, on the concrete part uh, in the ditch. But if you knock them in, it'll kill them. Wow. So that was really cool. And then I also found then one thing is I have a trillion toads in my my new yard. 
uh, every night, right by the Welcome road. Welcome to Texas. Mm-hmm. Well, every night there's a toad sitting right by the road on top of the little concrete thing. Just hangs out there every night. I guarantee if I went out there right now, he's sitting there. So that's cool. But that was all my, my herping so far. But we're going to do more. I'm looking forward that's to so it. so fun. So, Corey, anything else going on with you? Not really. I've, uh, I'm, I'm dealing with a, a female that's egg bound right now. And so that's been oh. kind of annoying today. Um, but yeah, just, you know, got, I've got my season kind of plugging along and that's about it. Finally getting animals, which is nice. I've what, been so uh, low inventory for so long. What are you doing for egg bound, for the egg bound snake? Soaking it or? Yeah. So I, um, I was able to get two of the eggs out today, but she has some, fr- there were adhesions. And so I, I was able to free the adhesions and get two of the eggs out, but there were, she still has three left and they're kind of further up. And so it's a, it's a hog nose. And so I reached out to, um, someone I know who's a really experienced hog nose breeder just to get some guidance. And he suggested, he was like, well, at this point, those eggs are just done. Like they're not going to be viable eggs for you at this point. Um, but just like he suggested just massaging the area a couple times a day um, to try to work the adhesions free, but not super aggressively to, you know, not damage the tissue, but just to, to kind of keep at it for a few days and see, see if we can get them freed. Cause they're, they're too far up right now to really yeah. do much. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Hmm. Well, yeah. that, that works out. That I would- hope. That stuff's always scary because, I mean, it could work out or you could lose a snake. I mean, it yep. could go either way. You know? oh. Yep. Apparently, we're supposed to take a picture and report those to aquatic invasives at tpwd.text.gov. Oh, we, need oh. To, we did take a picture. I did. Uh, Rachel did, but she sent it to me, I believe. So, we'll have to do that because, I mean, there were H- – and that was just one little spot. Imagine if we went if we went down that drainage canal, I bet every stop would have them. It uh, says they can produce – 500 to 700 eggs every 5 to 14 days. So Holy we need shit. to keep going over there and checking. That's a lot of fucking eggs. Yeah. And they get big. I mean, they get like bigger yeah, than like a baseball. baseball yeah. Wow. We didn't see any adults. We looked from, we really thought we, we saw another species of snail. They're little like uh, cone shaped snail that was native. Uh, but we did not see any apple snails. We just saw a shit ton of apple snail eggs. Wow. So, yep. That's all I got. All right. So, Corey, I appreciate yes. you feeling in this week. You're so welcome. And Katie's, she was here a little bit ago. Let's yeah, I saw her. It was, it was nice that she was able to find a way to pop on. Someone said their female Alterna was egg bound with three infertiles. And after she finally passed them, she laid 10 good eggs. Oh, wow. Huh. Interesting. Get those plugs out of the way and then all the good eggs. Yeah. Good. Oh, Katie's oh. still here. Katie is still there. Hello, Katie. So if they want to get a hold of you, Corey, and talk to you oh. and all that. What's yeah, absolutely. Way? So, uh, Instagram, Corey Martin Reptiles, Facebook, Corey Martin Reptiles. Uh, those are usually going to be the easiest ways. Just message me and I'm usually pretty responsive. Or any herp show within or any her- two hours of Austin. Yeah. I, I try to stick to like a four hour radius or so of my, of Austin. Um, so yeah, but I do most of those as well. Um, I put some stuff up on Morph Market, but I'm, I have, I think one snake on there right now. So good luck. I know you were really low on snakes the last couple of shows. Yeah, I've I've been, I've been quite low in inventory. There, there are worse problems to have, I suppose, (laughs) but it's been, it's been rough the past few shows. I've been just, you know, going through my whole back rack. Like, do I really need you? So. 
Robert, if you want to get a hold of you, www.lsreptilerex.com. Uh, you have a show in two weeks mm-hmm. in, in Shirts, Texas. In Shirts, Texas, which is just outside of San Antonio. Correct. That is the Lone Star Reptile Show. So come see Lone Star Reptile Rex at the Lone Star Reptile Show in Shirts in two weeks. Two weeks? It's two weeks, right? It's not this weekend. It's not this weekend. It's the following weekend. Yeah, it's next weekend. And then after that, the weekend after that is when we go to Slidell. I go back to Louisiana for yeah. a couple days. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us here at the podcast, it is the Reptile Gumbo Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and at gmail.com. Again, uh, any ideas for giveaways, like things that you think that people in the hobby would like for us to give away, shoot us an email or a message on Facebook. Let us know things that you might like to win. Um, because we have people that would like to sponsor, but sometimes I'm just, I can't think of what to give away. So give us an idea and we'll, we'll do that. I will have all the last one's giveaway winner and this one's giveaway, all that together next week. Now that I finally somewhat settled in here, uh, in Texas and I'm not, moving back and forth from my old house to this house things are better so we'll have that for next week but thank you Corey for coming on here uh, thank you, and we'll see everybody next week goodbye goodbye